What's up, everybody? Welcome to Tone Talk with Mark Uzanski and Dave Friedman. How are you? Uh, it's been a while since we've had a show. Tonight is a special Tuesday night show with a uh, killer musician from Dokken, Lynch Mob, KXM. We've got George Lynch on tonight, and uh, it's a pleasure to have you on, George. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And you're, no, he's giving us a show me. on the Dobro. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess uh, elect, you're, you're explaining to me that electric guitar doesn't translate very well uh, over the whatever medium that we're doing this on. So, uh, uh, and I, I thought it'd be cool to play. So, um, I guess Dobro works, right? Yeah. Can Sounds good. I can hear it. Yeah, we hear it. Wow, we already got 74 viewers already. More to come, more to come. I'm channeling my Robbie Shankar. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just let you go for a little while. All right. So. Yes. All right. We'll go. So, um, George, thanks for joining us, man. Did you just get back from on tour? Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, you know, we're always coming back and forth. I'm, I'm, uh, a lot of my touring these days is, is uh, what you call weekend warrior stuff, which is just, you, you know, you go out on a Thursday, come back on a Monday, mm-hmm. do two or three shows, maybe four. Uh, this last run, we we actually did two weeks. We, were, we flew out and stayed on the ground for a couple of weeks and um, came back. So, yeah. So do you usually but stay like local to where you're at? Or do you, do no, you go no, no. far out? No, we go we go everywhere, uh, but uh, um, you know, Canada, um, you know, across the United States, a uh, little bit of Japan, a little bit of Europe once in a while, not not that often. But um, you know, my favorite place to t- area to tour is the is the Southwest or Western United States. I, I love just staying out here. Uh, yeah, go back east. I'm a little bit out of my element not sure where i'm at and everything but uh um but yeah no it's it's uh, we've got a a new version of the of the lynch mob um we've, we've replaced the drummer and the singer and we've got the uh we got robert mason back in the band uh for about half the shows uh robert mason sang on the second lynch mob record back in 1992 i believe and uh Oh, got a dog barking back there. Sorry about that. That's all right. We, we've had right. we've had dogs barking on this show. We've before. had worse. We've had dogs on <laughs> Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, Robert sounds great. That was amazing. Yeah, yeah. I've heard, heard some stuff. It sounds great, man. It really does. Thank now you were just you were just playing just the other night, I think, with uh, with Slaughter, right? Yeah, that was a few weeks ago. Uh, Somewhere in the upper Midwest, uh, played a couple of casinos, opening up for Slaughter, and uh, we're really good friends with those guys, and and they're always great shows because we like hanging out with each other. Uh, it's you know it's a little competitive, but it's you know in a healthy, positive way, and yeah, we go fun. out and we you know do our best to fire the crowd up, and they go out and finish them off, and it's it's a lot of fun. We always have a full house, and so it works great. I also saw you played, you did a clinic in Detroit at my friend's store, Motor City Guitar. Yeah, yeah, that went really well. Uh, it was also a, a, a pretty big house, and um, 
quite honestly, uh, probably there were more people at the clinic than there were at the show that night, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, we, uh, uh, we've been doing pretty good the last few years with uh, with attendance and business and everything out on the road, but that was, uh, it was kind of a, a curiously weird night for us. It was not a packed house, and, it was, uh, and the clinic <coughs> actually was very packed. So what I'm thinking might have happened is that, uh, well, actually, no, no, I think, no, the, the show was pretty well attended, but I was worried that, that you know, they usually don't charge to come see you at a clinic. So I was thinking, well, maybe they're, hmm. maybe people will think, well, I can go see George and, and, and you know, I'm going to see what I want to see. I want to see George play solos and I want to hear him talk and it's free. Why do I need to go to the show and spend money to see him do the same thing? Uh, but, you know, that didn't happen, but I worry about that sometimes. But, uh there's a lot of times I'll, when I'm on, you know, I'll go out on tour and I have clinic obligations for ESP and uh, they'll ask me to do a clinic. And if they ask me to do a clinic, I got to say yes. Mm. And that means I have to go usually do it the day of the show before the show at a local music store or something. So it can be a conflict of interest, I think, sometimes. But actually, that show actually had was well attended. So it was all right. Hopefully people yeah, have know, already gotten their tickets at that point. but. If you go it's back true. to if, if you go back to Motor City Guitar at some point in time, ask Marty the owner to show you some of the vintage stuff he has stashed away. Dude, I you know what? <laughs> you don't I, want I, it. I was actually, you don't want to see it. <laughs> the store was awesome. They had all this kind of well, you know, what I saw just walking through the store and I had I've got my my tone radar on at all times of course when I walk in these stores, especially the mom and pops, you know, it's not not yeah. guitar centers, not Sam Ash, but, you know, places that have been around for decades, you know, and they've maybe acquired stuff and there's stuff hidden in nooks and crannies somewhere. Right. That's the and good thing. I was just seeing stuff right and left. It was great. I was just like, you know, an old Gibson over here, an old Silvertone amp, a, you know, just cool shit. And I was like, damn, old Ampeg stuff. And I was like, and I didn't have time to look because I was sick. I was under the weather. And um, so, I, and the place was packed. I mean, literally, yeah, people yeah. were just hanging out. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've been to the place, but you know, they were hanging out in all the hallways and the. the yeah, the store. The west. store is the store is owned by um, who, what I would consider my brother. Growing up, uh, mm -hmm. I grew up with I grew up with Marty who owns the store, so I I I know it very well. <laughs> I, I would consider yeah, him so my brother, even though I don't have a brother. But <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Zeppo Zeppo Friedman. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was at my house more more than I was at his uh, growing up, you know. So, man, I I honestly regret regret not spending some time there and checking out the gear. Uh, but the thing is, all the people that were there were on top of all the gear. Mm -hmm. So literally, yep. when I go over and look in a you know there'd be a bunch of amps stacked up, but there were people all around it. So it would be like I had to get through them to see the gear and. You know, of course, they want to take pictures and they want to shake my hand and talk. And I'm like, but I just wanted to see the gear. So it, it wasn't, I really couldn't figure Sorry, out a way but to negotiate I just want to see that. the gear. But I, I wasn't coming over yeah, to talk to you, actually. I just want to look at that Bogner over there. I appreciate you a lot, but I care about the, those amps more than I care about you. I care about this inanimate object more than I care about you as a human being. Uh, but no, that's not true. But, uh, sometimes it's but true. Yeah, you know what? It's uh, quite honestly, uh, when I'm out on the road, one of the things, I mean, okay, we love being on stage, of course, but the other 22 hours, not so much. 
So the way that we sort of deal with that is our, uh, my big reward is, and, and some of the other guys in the band feel the same way is that we, we always search for that store or that pawn shop or, you know, that little mom and pop. And then we have time, we go there and hopefully we find something, you know, sometimes yeah. we'll just go there. We'll all kind of jam or we'll maybe buy something, maybe not, but that's, you know, we call it tone questing mm-hmm. and that's what we do. And that's honestly makes touring funner, a lot funner for me when I can do that. And I usually bring stuff home. Uh, that's cool. <laughs> do you ship yeah. it home or you just take it and then you use it on the, on the uh, road? I, I ship it home because I'm not on the ground. I'm flying, so I have to have them ship it. Uh, gotcha. I, I'm actually sta- uh, sitting right next to an amp I bought, an old Magnetone uh, 213A Troubadour. Uh, I think it's 1958, 59. Hmm. If cool. you want, I can show it to you. Yeah. You know what it is, right? Can I, can I well, I, I know what it is. but I know what it is. But let's you know show it to the is. audience. Yeah. Uh oh. Something dropped. That's... Yeah, let's not do that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Can I see that right here? No. All right. Oh, I I get it? something. Yeah. Right. Uh, there uh, we, we go. We're we we just there. Oh, I so, see it. True yeah. Yeah. So, what is that, like a 1x12? It is. Got a Jensen 1x12. It's, I mean, Jake. If we can turn it the other way, that would be good. Uh oh. Uh oh. We're frozen. Better than I sir. Oh. There we go. All right. We won't do that again. Are we back? You're back. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You're back. But yeah, we'll we'll just leave it in place now. <laughs> <laughs> can you hear us? I can't hear him. Hello? You can't hear us? Headphones plugged in? Right here, look. Look, it says tone tone. Can't hear you? How about that? How about this? Can you hear us? We, we can hear you. Yeah. Go ahead and turn it up. Go ahead and turn it up some more. Can you hear us? Yeah. All, all right. right. It's getting louder. We, there we, we go. Got, I, there, I'm sorry. That's all right. I, I tried to show you that amp, and I screwed everything up, so we won't do that again. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Don't worry about it. That's cool. I, so I, when, Dave, when... I told you I'm not good at this this digital computer. I'm an old guy. Me and technology don't. I don't get it. It's better well, if luckily, I just come down. And you luckily, guys your daughter's there. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, I understand. Well, thanks. Thanks I to Mariah. I want to show you everything in this room, and I and I can't. I don't think I can do that. But okay. That's all right. No, you, it's awesome. We've got tons of questions for you. So there's a lot of people who uh, oh, okay. want to ask you questions. So, hey, um, how do you and Dave, how long you guys go back and know each other? Ooh. Uh, Seems like forever. Must I think have me been. and Dave are like, me and Dave are like, I'm like the Dave uh, brother Dave never had. <laughs> <laughs> like that guy at Motor City Music. There you go. Uh, I don't know. It's probably, it probably goes back. 15 years maybe or something. I think something like that. Yeah, it's definitely. May, oh, maybe I think I, before that. I, I think the first time we met up is when you were in North Hollywood near the Red Chandler. Place. Is that right? On Chandler in North Hollywood. First... Where were you before that? <sighs> no, that was the first time we, we did stuff. That was uh, 
you had your super reverb there and you had your Marshall there, your hundred watt Marshall you still have. And, mm. uh, I worked on it for the first time then must've been something like 15, maybe longer ago, 15, 18 years ago. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to say right around, uh, I think right when I moved back to Los Angeles, which was around 2002. I think you and you, you had just gotten that amp, you and Harris. That 100 watt. A 6800. Yeah. Which was magic back then. Magic. Man. Is that the amp that you're using now? The 68? No. Now uh, I up. I've been using a 6850 watt. This was a 6800 watt that was pretty much my holy grail for, as Dave said, for about a decade, if not more. Mm. And With a high watt cabinet. 50 watt. Oh, yeah. The high, uh, an old high watt cabinet with uh, uh, Fane speakers. Uh, and uh, just something about those old high watts with the port and the Fane speaker that to me is superior to the old Marshalls. I mean, I love the old Marshalls too with the old, um, you know, pre-rollers and 20 waters and all that. Uh, but the thing is, you know, you stick a hundred watt head through one of those and they sound great and then they blow up. Mm -hmm. I mean, speakers <laughs> can't handle it. And, and then the, the thing about the fangs, they can handle a lot more power, but they, they have a clarity to them that the, that the Celestians don't have. And I love the breakup of the old 20 water, even 25 watt Celestians. But there's something um, about the fanes that are just a little more stable, and the and the bottom end is not as floppy. Yeah, man. Just you still have that cabinet? I have two of them. Yeah, yeah probably mm -hmm. like 1970 or something. Yeah, and they're fantastic. Those are my favorite sounding cabinets. I got some. Um, they're super heavy, and I with them, so I very rarely use them live. The only time I'll ever use those live is when I'm doing a local show or something that's drivable, like, let's say, um, I live in Los Angeles, so, you know, if I do a show in Vegas, Phoenix, San Diego, something like that, I yeah. have them driven out and use them for that. Mm -hmm. Right. That, that's a luxury for me, but it's, I, I love it when I can use my own cabinets. The cabinets make such a difference. Oh, yeah, you big know? time. And you, re you rent stuff, right, generally, on most of the stuff, and just take the amps along, right? Well, uh my uh my favorite cabinet that's a that's a it's a new cabinet is the uh fender e v h four twelve mm -hmm. uh cabinets mm -hmm. and those, are, those cabinets. are twenty watt heritage speakers and uh the british made ones and they sound fantastic they're creamy they break up real nice break up real early uh but because of the, the newer ones they have more hand uh, power handling capabilities than the old twenty waters yeah so you're not going to blow them, uh, but the cabinets—they're not old. They're not old and crusty like the old ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're not going to have to have them reconed or anything. They'll stand up. They'll take a beating, but they sound fantastic. So I love getting those. But those are—it's you know what happens is I, I do these shows and I fly out or whatever, and uh, the promoter has to hire a rental company that then hire you know rents out the gear, rents out the backline, mm -hmm. and it's 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 very rare that they stock fender stuff everybody has marshall cabinets so 80 mm. percent of the time i'm getting 1960b's you know mm. stereo cabinets mm. and uh they're all right they're fine um 
but when not I, the greatest. Occasionally, I'll get I'll get the Fender four twelves, and that's that's a you know that's a treat for me. It definitely makes a difference. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely have a, so, you know, hey, a twenty percent better night. Question for you: um, You mentioned that hundred watt plexi that you were talking about before. Uh, so we had a question from Joe Suma and uh, Jim Vambas. They wanted to know: Was that amp borrowed um, or something that you had gotten from Warren Demartini? Was that was that <laughs> no. that amp? No. Uh, no. 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 It, no, it but... actually was. It was borrowed. Uh, uh, I have a friend uh, uh, in Texas, and uh, who I met at a clinic. Uh, you know, like probably 15 years ago. And we became good friends through kind of just the tone quest thing. You know, he's a, mm -hmm. a guitar player as well and uh, has some great gear. And we just started uh, communicating back and forth and exchanging information and became friends and then started exchanging gear. And uh, we bought the 68 together. Um, and uh, so now it wasn't, it was sort of borrowed because he owned half of it. He had half the equity in it, but of course I got all the use out of it. Cause he's, he's not in the hand. So hey, well, it didn't really, you know, kind of worked to my advantage, but you know, I pretty much had possession of it for the last uh, decade and a half, but we did buy it together. And technically we both own it, which is cool. We like owning it together and kind That's of awesome. worked on it. Dave worked on it for, for a long time. And, it's, and you um, took it somewhere else, and then you brought it back to me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> now, is that your favorite amp? Or... Yeah, beware. Yeah. It, it, it was. It was. It was. It really had that Eddie thing uh, when uh, back then, actually, because um, I did tour uh, on the road back then on the ground. I'd stay on the ground so I could take stuff. And I'd bring out my cabinets, and I ran a, uh, an Echoplex in front of it, an EP3, I believe. And uh, uh, the Boss GE10 EQ, like Eddie used, mm -hmm. and a Vintage Phase 90, like Eddie used, and uh, it it had it that sound. I mean, real close. Um, and you know, I, you hear you hear guys doing Eddie mods uh, on amps uh, nowadays, and to me, a lot of times they'll have the Eddie sound, but it's like big fish little pond Eddie sound. You know what I mean? I mean, it's bedroom wise. Yeah. You know, it sounds, you can do eruption and do all that stuff. Kind of sounds like it, but yeah, remember when Eddie really, when you went to see Eddie, it was a much bigger thing. Mm -hmm. It was just those, yeah. and you no master and volume. You were around and here and in that scene at the time. So, oh yeah. When was the first time you saw him? When was the first time you knew about him? Uh, uh, I had been hearing about him and this was late seventies. Yeah, and I'd been hearing about him. I guess maybe maybe it was '79. Can't really say for sure. And uh, you know, just word on the street among guitar players. Have you heard this guy? He's like from Amsterdam or something. He's half Filipino, or nobody knew what he was. I couldn't even <laughs> remember his name. He had this weird name, Von something or other, Von Husen or something. I'm like, okay. And uh, they go, oh, no, you got to see this guy. And so uh, I was living in. Uh, uh, Orange County, and uh, uh, they played a place called. Uh, it was in Norwalk. What was it called? It was a big. It was Golden West Ballroom, 
Mm-hmm. It was a big, you know, like it sounds, but it was a ballroom. So it was a big venue, great rock venue. So a lot of good bands there. And, uh, and I went down to see him and I was actually backstage kind of in the wings behind the curtain watching him. And I'd never seen him. And I mean, Eddie just blew my mind. I mean, it was crazy. And he had, this is when he had the torpedo with the little Univox uh, tape delay in it mm-hmm. and the smoke machine in it. And uh, they had their own light show that Michael Anthony ran with his feet, with the foot pedals. Oh, wow. Michael, I remember Michael Anthony wear, was wearing clogs. <laughs> that was kind of weird. And it, uh, <laughs> he would switch all the lights. And then, of course, David Lee was a, a lord. You know, he just came out there and and uh, uh, he was insane, right? I, I remember thinking, though, he's very Jim Dandy-ish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of that a little bit. But it was cool, you know? Uh, but yeah, and they had songs. But at that point, they were doing about half originals and half covers. So they did Man on the Silver Mountain. They did mm. some Montrose. I can't remember what else, but... Oh, man, they were just a... They were like a force of nature. I was just, Wow. And me and everybody else, you know, every other guitar player in Southern California couldn't help it, but, you know, tried to emulate him to some, to one extent or the other. And I was an right. exception. Yeah. So right. I've heard, you know, people come up to me in interviews before and ask me uh, over the years, oh, I heard you did this and that before Eddie. I go, I didn't do anything before Eddie. <laughs> <laughs> tap before Eddie. We heard you taught Eddie to tap. Like, no, I didn't. T- oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he took a guitar lesson from me. He goes, hey, man, what's that one thing you're doing? Uh, the eruption thing. Oh, yeah. Well, I called it explosion, and then he ripped it off, and he called it eruption. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Now there is a rumor that there's a rumor that you would talk. Oh, I almost put the quiet. Yeah, that's what I showed. <laughs> I actually so- did show that what I just played, even though this is in a different tuning, so it didn't sound right. But I did actually show that to Randy Rhodes backstage at a gig, and he played it on – he learned it. He made me play it back like 10 times till he figured it out exactly, and then he put, played it on an Aussie record. Yeah, that's so what I someone – I was, just, oh, I was yeah. just about to ask you about that because um, someone wrote me that earlier. Uh, let's see. Yeah, it was on Flying High Again, they said. Yeah, 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 yeah that's it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, so that rumor's true. I didn't, I didn't know that story until right now. <laughs> and then I was hired to play on a, a Aussie tribute record, I think it was, or maybe it was a, a Randy tribute record, and I played that solo, which is kind of, you know, full circle. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So I'm that, that also, question... I just that one second. Sorry, George. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, I would... I was just say that that question was asked by Craig Stofko. He wanted to know about the Randy Rhodes lick, so he he asked if that was true. So thanks, thanks, Craig. Um, one of the most famous licks ever. Yeah, I mean that for Randy. Totally, with George's. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Hey, um, at least that was good enough for him to want to borrow something from you know. So I take it as a compliment. Totally, no problem with that. Yeah, because I, I'm the exception. I'm the one guitar player that has never plagiarized anybody else's l- licks or anything, style or anything. 
And, and any song I've ever written has never been derivative of any other song <laughs> ever written in history. I don't use any of the same notes that have ever been used in music. <laughs> it's so unique. Yeah. yeah. You're a one of a kind. Oh, dude, yeah. my notes are all done. I just make them up. <laughs> See, th there's the lesson right there, guys. Um, make up your own, make up your own <laughs> chords. All right, we got another question from Thomas Hewer. He wanted to know, he says, because he knows that you love amps, as we can see behind you. Um, he said, if you can only have one live in studio, what would be the one amp that you would want to have on that desert island? Oh, desert island? Hmm. Well, he didn't say desert island. I threw that in there. But he just wants to know if you can only have one. Hmm. Well, it would sort of depend on the application. Um, but assuming it would be in the context of what I normally do, mm -hmm. my day job, which is playing in a loud rock band, uh, playing that kind of music, uh, and and this this is just for this week alone. This expires at the end of the week. But it would be my <laughs> 1971 Small Box Park 75. And that's the one we were just looking at. Before. Of course, That's a couple cool. days yeah. ago, it was his 1968 Plexi 50, right? <laughs> Very similar amps, though, right? Actually, technically, the same amp. Right. Um, same same transformers. transformers. Yeah. I'm not sure about the tubes. I got to open that up and look at it. I got a feeling that the park has the big bottle KT, would it be KT-88s, 77s? Yeah, KT-88s. Maybe it might. I mean, if you said it kind of seamlessly, um, my guess is it probably doesn't have those tubes, but you know, we'll see. We'll see when you bring it. Probably has 34s, yeah. But still, yeah. lay down transformer, pretty much same circuit, I would assume. Although, yeah. from what I understand, a lot of those parks, the majority of those parks had the base circuit or something yeah, between correct. the base and the lead circuit. Yeah, correct. So, we don't know until you bring it to me. We can see what's yeah. in it. It's a little was darker, the... a little thicker, more complex, but wonderful. Hmm. Is it? Um... I'd like to play it for you, but you guys won't let me. Oh, I'd love to have you play, but it, it'll sound like crap, unfortunately. Yeah, I'd... I'll be talking it all up, how great it is. <laughs> <sound like> <laughs> that's, that's the problem. I would love to have you play, trust me. Um... I don't want it to sound good, because then people are going to go, oh, shoot, we got to buy those, and then it's going to drive the price up, and then I'm not going to be able to buy any more of them, because they'll be too expensive, so... <laughs> That happened. You, That's what happened with these magnetones when uh, Phil X started playing them and made him famous. Yeah, made him desire. I, I almost thought on that desert island amp you were going to say my amp, <laughs> my my fifty watt plexi. <laughs> uh, your your fifty watt plexi be right up there. I, I I thought I thought you were referring to just something I own, but if it was something no. I didn't own that I could have my pick of anything, mm. I would say probably. Uh, I uh, would probably say a Dumble Overdrive Special. Mm. Wow, now that has nothing to deal with the rock band part of it, part of you. No, but you go. I, if, but if you had a Dumble Overdrive Special, chances are you might not have it anymore because you would have sold it already. Because, uh, well, it's worth a whole ton of money. <laughs> yeah, I think a hundred and a quarter now. Yeah. 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 Yeah, we had a question I mean, about that train wreck behind you, but. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of speaking of dumbbells, 
Mm-hmm. Those things are nice. The train wrecks. Ken Fisher, right? Right. That, that's not a that's not a Ken Fisher. Uh, uh, Carl Pope made this one in uh, Las Vegas, and he plays guitar for uh, uh, somebody famous. I can't remember who. Um, John Mellencamp. Hmm. And uh, uh, I was working at a studio in Vegas, and uh, it was sitting in there. And I asked if I could plug in. I plugged in, and I was I fell in love. And I was like, I called him up and I bought it. And uh, they actually let me take that one from the studio. So I'm taking this. I, I'll work out the business later, but I got to take this home. <laughs> they called him up and they said, okay, we, you know, we know who you are. We know where you live. That's the thing with being George Lynch. I'm, how, I can't rip anybody off. I mean, I know who I am. <laughs> yeah, I'll talk uh, to you. you know. yeah, didn't, you try, didn't you try to take Warren, Warren Demartini's amp from his house once? <laughs> I did take his amp from his house. He was leaving his house. He was having a party. Uh, <laughs> I'm not trying to drop names, but it was a lot of guitar players. It was pretty cool. Michael Schenker was there and, and uh, some other guys, well-known guys. And uh, uh, we were watching Band of Gypsies uh, DVD, or back then it was VHS, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I was leaving. We had a few drinks. And I was leaving, and he had amps stacked up by the door. And I just it was just kind of a last-minute thing. I just thought, hey, this is probably a pretty good idea. I just grabbed <laughs> my car and me and my wife and drove back to my hotel and didn't say anything to him. And I think it was maybe quite a while later, like maybe days later that he was, Hey, you didn't happen to take my amp. Did my you? I think I let him sweat a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, don't leave, don't leave amps right by the door. So hey, how about you run down you don't George? Why don't, you, why don't you run down your uh, your career basically? Like when did you start? When what was the first band? What where, you know? Where did it you know briefly? Hmm. I was going to say we're going to be here for a while. Uh, <laughs> uh, Take a time. Give us the uh, give us the rundown. Let's see, the, the very first band I was in, I can't even remember the name of it, but it was a, it was they were they were the pro guys in like that part of LA that where I lived, there's Paramount, Lakewood, Bellflower, Downey, Long Beach, Compton, that whole kind of neck of the woods. And, uh, these guys were just like a whole other level, very pro. And, uh, I was, I think 14 at the time. And I had my 1960 Les Paul special and a black face treble X piggyback amp. And a Jordan boss tone. That was my distortion, which is a boss. It was a effect that plugs right in. It's a little black square box, and it has a nine volt battery. It plugs right into your into your mm-hmm. guitar, mm-hmm. and they sound amazing. And uh, and that was my rig. And I was really coming into my own and had a style and everything. And but I wasn't, you know, I was still had a lot of maturing left to do. Obviously, I, was, I think maybe I was fifteen. And uh, I got a job at a head shop, and they. And these guys practice there. Hmm. So uh, one thing led to another, and they invited me in to play a gig, which was a, a a big gig for, you know, my age and where we were at. It was at Southgate um, Community Park, and it was a big hall, and they were having a battle of the bands. And it was packed, you know, I mean, and my, my, all my friends and my whole family were there, and we rehearsed and everything. We went out, and they pulled the curtain, and it was my first gig i've never played in front of people before in my life i completely froze 
and I, I forgot everything. I couldn't remember the songs. I got lost, and they just fired me on the spot. They closed <sighs> the curtain. My parents were ashamed of me. Everybody booed me. It was like, <laughs> oh, no. Really? You know, it, was, uh, it was tough. So uh, it was a wake-up call. So I had, to, you know, I had to get past that. You know, I had to get to that next level. And so then I formed a band called Tungus Grump with my, uh, I moved, I was living with this family and I was going to high, uh, the bass player. I was living with his, the bass player's family and um, they were kind of raising me and uh, well, we're raising me. And uh, so we worked together. We did, we had, uh, his dad was a carpet linoleum guy. So we would work during the day doing carpet. We weren't going to school. And then um, we played on weekends and we rehearsed up in the garage and that was my first real band. We were called Tungus Grump, and we were rock and blues. I mm. still have the business cards. It lists me as the as the contact with my with my phone number, and I still have the contracts from the gigs we played, high school sock ops, and just battle the bands and stuff like that. You know, we'd make like thirty five dollars. You know, all our friends would like be our roadies, and <laughs> you know, we, it was a big deal, man. It was great. And back then, there was a lot of this cutting heads thing, uh, where there'd be uh, guitar players from other parts of town that were the hot shots, you know, like the guy from Long Beach. And mm-hmm. then there was another, another guy uh, from Downey, Alan Maricatani. Alan Maricatani passed away kind of recently, but he was the uh, uh, Buddha Chung King. Uh, Chung King? You know oh, uh, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Chung King. Uh, yeah. I can't think of the that rest guy. of the name. Phenomenal, phenomenal player, monster player. I mean, I haven't seen him play in obviously decades, but, back when I was a teenager, he was the guy from across town and he was a monster. There was a couple other guys like that. And so there we'd, we'd have these backyard parties or whatever they were. And like their crew would show up with his guy and he'd jam and I'd jam. And it was, it was, dude, it was like world war three. It was <laughs> for me. It was like, you know, it was me against this guy, you know, and then it was cutting heads, you know, it was a, a thing. Uh, it was pretty exciting, and that's you know that's how I learned. So I had this band Tungus Grump. We went through a bunch of changes, and then um, then I went through. Then I moved up to Northern California, and I was I was in this band called um, with Mick Brown, uh, and I answered an ad, and they were called Sergeant Rocks, and they were a glitter band, so kind of like New York Dolls but really, really loud. <laughs> and they had, you know, we had pyro, tons of pyro, and we did a lot of covers. I think it was almost all covers. And, uh, but we were all glammed out. Um, so I, I was in that band, and then what happened was our whole band room was lined with egg crates, and we would blow up pyro in our band room. So we blew up, <laughs> we lit our band room on fire. Catching on fire? Oh, no. Yeah, and burned all the equipment. Oh. And I, yeah, I was heartbroken because I had a sixty, a late sixties, you know, three metal toggle, uh, plexi, fifty watt, which sounded fantastic, mm. and I didn't even know what I had, and uh, that burned up in the fire, but still worked. It was all melted, but it still worked. And I remember I went out and bought a new metal face. I went to San Francisco and got some insurance money or something. Went and bought a a new metal face, and and. Uh, it didn't have the sound. It wasn't like mm-hmm. the plexic, but 
so we did that band for a while and then uh me and mick started a new band uh up there and it was just we were kind of like this crazy improv band and we we would play gigs down by the river and generator power and biker things and hippie things we just play wherever never really got paid and uh, this was in the 70s and uh uh we were called zoltar galactic gladiator of the blue skies wow <laughs> oh we fit it on a marquee couldn't fit it on a t-shirt wow nobody could remember the name but it was you know and we had these like 15 minute songs that were all you know constructed and very uh Pink progressive Floyd. very strange band but and so then so then i said you know guys we're never gonna we're not gonna do anything up here let's go to los angeles and, and get discovered so we loaded up you know u-haul strapped everything to the sides and we we all moved down there and uh we had a band room in north long beach uh had a bathroom that's about it and uh we lived there and uh, it was right next to the railroad tracks. There was a lick, there was a bar and it was a, uh, an adult bookstore, which we spent a lot of time in. And uh, <laughs> yeah. Why not? Uh, make a quarter go a long way. Believe me when you have to. Uh, <laughs> never mind. Uh, and uh, it, girlfriends would work at like their various fast food places and that's basically how we ate and then we'd go to our girlfriend's house or whatever to take showers during the day and that's that's how we lived we had one car between us we'd scrounge up change gas and it would get us where we needed to go and we practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced uh and we had a singer we were called the boys and we had a singer this was mick brown monty Sufelt, and this singer named michael white uh, and he was very Robert Plantish, but he uh, he talked us into letting him play flute in the band. And uh, we were against it, but he goes, just give it one shot. And if people don't go nuts, I'll never bring it up again. But people will freak out. They're going to love it. And we're like, really? They're going to love the flute solo? Okay. But he had this <laughs> thing where he blew fire out the end of his flute. So he would practice this and this is you know not a great area of long beach where we where we rehearsed uh, and so he would go out to this park near the river tracks at night and practice blowing fire by using bacardi 151 and and lighting it on fire in his flute and he'd be out there in his park at night practicing these people would just be freaking out you know <laughs> these black dudes they'd just be what is this crazy white fucker over here blowing fire out his flute you know <laughs> <laughs> and uh it was just nuts and we had all kinds of it's just it was a crazy time i can't i can't even believe that we lived the way we lived but um we did whatever we had to do we really believed in ourselves like most musicians at that age and young bands like that you're green you don't quite get it that you're not quite there yet i mean our songwriting our compositional skills were not there we hadn't quite acquired you know our style or figured everything out yet you know, and we were still searching, you know, working it out, but we were so hungry and so convinced that we deserve to be, you know, ruling the universe with our music that, you know, nothing could stop us. And so that kept us going. Yeah. And then that, that band turned into Exciter and we changed singers. We, uh, uh, Michael White left and we got Greg Sanford. Uh, Greg's brother, Rick Sanford, was in a band called Legs Diamond, 
who mm-hmm. we did a lot of shows with or some shows with. And that was really the, uh, the, the golden era for me musically uh, in uh, Southern California, as far as the, the different bands. There were bands like A La Carte, who were phenomenal. Uh, Kevin, the guitar player, I think was a one of the guys that should have, could have, would have, but he didn't. But we all knew, all the all us guys, all the rest of us, the rest of the guitar players knew that Kevin was the shit. Mm. You know, it was Eddie, it was Randy. Kevin was one of those guys. Uh, he was very, very like Billy Gibbons, but they would dress up like uh, in lingerie, like Rocky Horror Picture Show. And they were all pretty much high on heroin, I think. So they were all strung out, but they were badass. And uh, they just fell off the map. But mm. uh, uh, and then there, of course there was Van Halen, there was uh, Quiet Riot, there was a lot of other bands, um, and they were all really different. I remember at that time there were all these this just huge variety of, of groups. Uh, so Stormer and Orange, and uh, it was some band. It was a magic band. They actually had holograms and this magic fountain on stage. I mean, there was all these different kinds of bands. It wasn't like later on in the '80s when when one band would do something, everybody would just mimic them and wear the same outfits and play the same kind of music and mm-hmm. do their hair the same and mm-hmm. have the same sound. It, it was everything in the, in the late seventies, it was not like that. It was like, everybody had their own style and sound. And so it was a lot of variety. So it was really interesting. Uh, and uh, so Exciter uh, really, I think uh, got to the point where I think, there are very valid. We are, our, our our compositions were valid. My tone was in, was really good at that point. I felt and my playing it was was maturing, and the band really came into it itself. And and uh, but you know just we'd been failing for so long that it just caught up with us and we just couldn't sustain it any longer. You know we really didn't have anything happening mm. as far as you know a record deal or any great gigs or anything like that. Business wise, there wasn't much going on, but you know, other than the music, but, um, so it was kind of sad, but, um, at that point, that's when, uh, uh, Don Dawkin came along cause he had done some shows with us and, uh, you know, I'd met him a couple of times and he, he approached Mick and I and asked us if we wanted to join forces and, and do Dawkin. And, uh, and we did. And that's when that whole, uh, era started. And then of course, you know, the story from there. So at what point did you get discovered and get, get signed? Boy, that was a long answer to a very short question. Sorry about no, that. No, that was a great... Oh, that's a good... Good. That was relatively short. <laughs> yeah. 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 So how far into playing with Don Dawkins did, did you guys get signed and then get a record deal? Uh, very quickly. Uh, well, I'd say within a year. Uh, so relatively quickly. Uh, there was a little bit of a hiccup. We got... It wasn't a direct path to a major record deal. We actually had a very backdoor approach to getting signed, which which we we started out by uh, uh, we got a charter flight to uh, Germany, and we lived in Germany for about six months, uh, playing gigs and uh, writing and recording our record, and um, and that record. Uh, we were able to record the record because we had a publishing deal with a German publisher, which paid for the record. And then we got signed to a French label called Carrere. It was a very small deal. Hmm. 
and that allowed us to just get a foothold and get something going on, you know. So, and we did our first record at Dirk's, uh, uh, Dirk Studios. I think it was Peter Dirk's. Is that his name? He was Scorpion's producer, and that was in Germany. And uh, is it a Michael Wagner Dirk's or something? Dieter Dirks, I'm sorry. Dieter yeah. Dirks, Peter yeah. Uh, so well-known producer and he had this facility and, and, and we basically lived there and ate there and did our record there. And it was interesting because, you know, we were down in the basement, uh, which was like the B or C studio, but upstairs in the big studio was Scorpions doing Dynamite. Hmm. Uh, they were doing the Dynamite album. And in the other studio was Rory Gallagher. So wow. I had surrounded by these other guitar players it was pretty awesome and so uh what i would do was when i got something done you know like got a solo done and that i was proud of i'd ask them if they wanted to come down and hear it and they'd come down and they'd listen you know was, i don't have any pictures that i wish i did you know rory gallagher and uh matthias right um, and then uh, matthias did the same thing that randy did though we were because we would all eat together in this big dining room uh big long tables and fraud dirks had come out and feed us and everything, which we thought was free. So we were like eating every day, like, you know, like Kings and found out <laughs> later that was all being billed to us. And we had this gigantic bill, which we didn't know was coming, but anyways, so we were sitting there and uh, scorpions would be there. Rory Gallagher was there and we'd be there and we'd all be eating. And then uh, I'd be playing. I'd always have my guitar on me, you know, and I'd be playing and, and Matthias would come up to me and he'd ask me, Oh, how are you doing that? How do you do this? How do you do that? And we go right in the studio. I mean, no shame. Literally, <laughs> like, from the dining room table into the studio and record it on his album. So I showed him how to do that. I don't know if you can hear it. But this, that thing. Yeah, Just the... do the harmonic, you know, on the A string. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't sound like anything on a dobro, but I don't like right, the right, guitar. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a very percussive... I think it's on the song Dynamite, but you'll hear it. I was like, dude, no shame. <laughs> I ripped it off from somebody else, so that's okay. I know Eddie yeah, did that too, right? Uh, Eddie, it was an Eddie thing. Yeah, stole it from Eddie. <laughs> that's cool. Um, yeah. So, oh, we got a question for you. Um, a lot of people in the chat want to know what's behind the white curtain on the amp behind you. That white uh, cover there. Oh, that's a really interesting amp. Uh, it's called a Fastback Custom. And it, <laughs> this is a Custom 22 GT. It's a prototype. I bought it about eight years ago. Uh, I played it. I saw it in the studio. I played through it. I loved it. It's a 22-watt amp. So I'm, I'm thinking it's EL84s, if I can Probably, remember. yeah. And... Um, kind of forgot about it i used it on a, a track i was hired to do just a, a somebody wanted to be a, play a solo on, on some record or something and uh i i heard it recently i just blew my mind i go what is that amp and it's just it was that thing it's just phenomenal sounding but uh i don't even know if they're still in business i don't know much, don't know much about it but uh and, and and here's the thing when you have all these amps you never use them all. Right. I mean, I got all this, you know, honestly, any one of these amps would probably be fine. They probably all work. 
Right. And uh, recently I started thinking, why do I have all this stuff? What's the point? And I think Dave, you and I were talking about this <laughs> yeah. not too long ago. Keep the good stuff you know, and get rid of the rest. The day, back in the day, you have one amp, you had one guitar, and maybe a pedal, and that was it. And yeah. you made it work, and you did everything you needed to do with that. Well, you've, you've sort of got... stripped strip that down recently, you know? With all your latest stuff, well, all, you're... All I... It's a, a guitar into a tube screamer into a Marshall. And, yep. okay, then there's a line out with a couple delays uh, for a little bit of ambience. But that's it. Yeah. And it sounds yeah. great. All the recent videos and stuff right? sound killer. I'm telling you, Nothing the pedal there. Board, taking that pedal board, taking that pedal board out of the, out of the, uh, the uh, you know, the, 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 the signal chain was the best thing I ever did. I mean, just having that thing in there would just... Well, it's also of the tone. Yeah, and it's it, it take well even even if it doesn't, it also takes your mind off. You know, you're just like, well, let me turn that pedal on while I do this. Let me turn that, and then yes. you're not really concentrating on your playing, and you're, you know, it's just like it's like well, just play. It's it's like text messaging when you're driving. Yeah, exactly. You know, it takes your attention off what you should be doing the road, and mm-hmm. and you're right. And I'd be thinking. What are my feet going to do instead of what am I? What is my head, heart, and hands going to do? Right. Um, and it's not even that you're even thinking about should be thinking about what your hands are doing, because you necessarily shouldn't, or I shouldn't. But it's you want to be kind of in that semi-conscious Zen state, ideally, where you're just talking guitar and you're telling the story, or you're flowing, or you're in the moment, you know. Mm-hmm. And if you're thinking about Oh, what combination do I have to? Then it takes you out of that. Yeah, see what I'm saying. So it's it's like meditating and having you know a, some distracting noise or a train come by or something. You know, it's just you don't need that noise. And there's so much you can do with just your hands, you know, and the instrument, you know, and the volume knob uh, and the guitar and everything. Yeah, it's like yeah. I mean, I, really, when you think about it. Uh, I mean, look at Jeff Beck. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know he uses effects, but still, I mean, look at all the stuff he does with the bar and just his fingers. And then, you know, in recent, obviously recent years, I've I've gone to, you know, dropping the pick a lot and just, or hold, you know, palming the pick and doing hybrid finger picking or whatever you call it. But, mm-hmm. man, it's just so many things you can do. I mean, even, uh, like, let's say you're just without the pick and you're palming the pick and you just, Okay, fingers are cool. You can do a lot with that. And, but then, okay, what about just the thumb? Because I remember, you know, you watch Albert King. I mean, his thumb is his pick. Mm-hmm. You know, grows his nail out. And that's, but look what he does with that. Where mm-hmm. Albert King is basically living on just a couple of strings in one very small area of the neck. But he's saying everything you need to say with that. But it's all with pick inflection, which is his thumb. Mm-hmm. So there's that. And I saw Hendrix do that too once. Uh, where he played you know just there's a different sound of the attack with the thumb so there's that or maybe you do like uh uh like this kind of picking you know uh-huh. you know what, what i don't know what you call it fan picking or not fan picking but it's kind of like a rotational thing you know you, you just start thinking you out and you know uh, necessity is the mother invention. So out of necessity forces you to think of other ways to do things. So mm-hmm. you can make wah-wah sounds. You can, 
you know, all the, how, when you play the lower notes and you just really bear down with the pick and you get all kinds of harmonics and stuff down in the lower notes. I mean, mm -hmm. you just start searching around for other ways to do things, playing the strings uh, above the nut or below the bridge or, you know, on a Les Paul kind of guitar, you could take the string, the high string right off the net. You know what I mean? Right. And just start bending it. Bending it down here and, and playing with <laughs> your pick above the, you know, between the neck and the bridge mm -hmm. and creating melodies on where there would be more frets, where the 30th fret would be and so forth. And, mm -hmm. or, or using the pick as a slide or, you know, muting, obviously, and harmonics and just, I don't know, on and on and on. Yeah, it's amazing how how much from a technique perspective, just on the guitar, you don't need any of the effects, you don't need any of that stuff. Just learning all of that. I mean, you just rattled off so many different techniques and things that you can do just with the guitar. And and not while you're playing. Yeah. You detune. Uh, uh, even playing percussively on the body, you know, or on the. On the mm -hmm. strings themselves, you know, because yeah. I always kind of look at guitar as a, uh, is, with my approach to leads, uh, as as a as a percussive thing, almost as a you know like like um, as a drummer in some ways, um, rather than as as a as a as a as a, as a guitarist or even a, a, as a wind instrument or a keyboard. Um, although a lot, when I was younger, I was listening to, to a lot of sax players and a lot of jazz music and trying to emulate sax players. That was another thing. And I know Holdsworth, that's, was his thing. He was trying to yeah. emulate wind uh, yeah. instruments. Right. Um, so almost like listening to anything but guitar is kind of a really inspiring thing to do. I feel, um, you know, uh, cello, <laughs> you know, uh, other strings, uh, uh, especially wind instruments, because, uh, you know, that's a whole other kind of language. Mm. And then to translate that to guitar causes you to think that, I think it changes the way that you look at the instrument less linearly and more like a vocal voicing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's in interesting, because I just recently took a lesson where we were looking at um, the actual vocal line of a the melody line of a, of a song and trying to do that on the guitar, just do mm -hmm. the vocal line, which is very different than, you know, so just doing that alone, you know, learning that. Elliot Easton, Elliot Easton gave me the, some of the best advice I'd ever gotten about guitar uh, last year. Hmm. It was like gold. He said, uh, when you go to play a solo, don't even, I mean, it's kind of obvious when you think about it, but really it was great. He goes, don't play anything on guitar. Just listen and think in your head what you would want to play or sing. You know, just have that melody and do that and force yourself to then have the guitar fit that rather than, you know, just start playing what you usually play. Because, you know, when we all sit down, we all kind of play the, by habit. We go back to playing the same thing over and over again year after year just because of the way the neck is and your fingers have muscle memory and all that. Mm -hmm. But if he goes, if you just think first, you know, you listen to the track and okay, I'm going to need to play something here. Now think in your mind's eye, what would you want to hear somebody else play there? What would Hendrix play there? What would Neil Sean play? What's some Eddie, just Eddie, Eric Clapton, whatever. And then 
conform to that, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was that's good, good advice. advice. And it's yeah. it's hard advice to remember to you to, to actually utilize that advice. It's hard to remember when you're in the saddle and the time comes. It's hard to remember to do that. It's almost like you have to write yourself a note. Right. You remember to do that because it's you have the habit of just you know, we all have our habits are ingrained in us. So. Right. And it's and it's probably way. easier. Right. Just to go back to what you're used to. It's not even it's easier. It's just you naturally default to that because yeah. that's what you do when you've been doing something 40 years or, or whatever, 20, 50, you know, I've been playing 53 years. You just I just have a thing I do, you know, and it works. But mm-hmm. if you. But you want to keep growing or at least not or at least going sideways or, or doing different things that keep it really interesting, you know, for yourself. Um, you need to think about things like that. You need to force yourself to get out of your box, you know, your, your comfort zone, I think. And that's easier said than done. That's true. Comfort zone works, you know, especially as we get older and we kind of have a legacy and we, you know, we guys like myself have been around a while. And we have a lot, you know, we have a, you know, we have a, a catalog of music and people expect to hear all that. They don't care about your personal quest. You know, they just want to hear you. No, they want, they, want, they want to hear you do. Uh, yeah. 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 Mr. Scary. Tooth and nail or Mr. Scary. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, yeah. And I honor that and I, and I respect that. And of course that's, you know, I'm able to be fortunate enough to be a musician and, and, and earn a living at this for my whole adult life and raise, you know, a big family and, and be somewhat secure financially and so forth. So I appreciate that. So I don't want to dishonor the people that allow me to do that and put me here. But at the same time, I have a, an allegiance to, you know, the musical force and the calling mm-hmm. that first called me out when I was young to keep chasing that dragon, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is, if you ever, here's to me, the sad thing is if I ever, caught the dragon you know what i mean like if i like oh you know what i finally figured out i played the world's best guitar solo i played i wrote the world's best song it's over then it's over then it's time to just drop it and go do something else you know so <laughs> it's the chase is really the whole thing right exactly it's like and the tone questing you know the, the tone is the thing that allows everything else to have such a critical component for me because i'm not a schooled player you know, I don't know theory at all. I'm just kind of off the top of my head, shoot from the hip guy. Uh, can't even play my own damn solos, note for note. So, you know, uh, I'm very, very tone dependent. So that's why, you know, like Dave is so important to me because um, uh, I, I'm not an, uh, you know, an engineer. I'm an amplifier engineer. I can't, I can't translate electronic circuits into sound. I don't know why it sounds good but Dave does. So mm. when I'm searching like that and, I, and, and I'm just not getting the sound, so I'm, that, that feedback loop is not happening. I'm not hearing it back the way I hear it in my head. I, it's not going to work. It breaks the circuit. But when, you know, let's say Dave and I are working on something and we get something tweaked and it's magic. It is magic. It's just like, okay, now I don't have to think about anything. Mm-hmm. Now it just happened. And so in other words, it's a thing that allows you to not break that feedback loop and that, that creative flow. Uh, if, if the sound is bad or, or not, you know, it's not giving you what you want and you're fighting it, it, it doesn't, you're, you're not going to be going to that next level where you need to get, you know, in fact, I had a, 
I had a show. In fact, the, the show that I was talking about earlier in the week, uh, and I was playing through a particular amplifier, this the 68 JMP50. And for some reason, it just was, it was the first time I played through it. And it was just, yeah, it's good, but it's just not, blow, it's not bowling me over and I'm not having an inspired night. And there was other reasons for that. Uh, I wasn't having an inspired night. I was a little tired and I'd been sick and it was the last show of the eight show run. And I just wanted to go home. <laughs> and uh, then I, I just said, you know what? I'm just going to plug in that other amp. I plugged in another amp and all that stuff that I wanted was there. And it transformed my playing and it transformed the show. And we went and there were actually people in the audience. They were a tough audience. And they were like calling me out. They were like, come on, George, bring it. Come on. Where's it at? <laughs> you know, go there. They were saying stuff like. Yeah. Oh, did we lose George? That, I don't know. It's not. Right. You froze up there, George. I can see oh, okay. you. Okay, you're I think you're back. You're, you're well, back now. Yeah, anyways. We good? I think we're good. You're, you're, the connection's slow. I'm not sure why. Hmm. It's but, okay. Um, it happens every once in a while. Yeah. So just Maybe tell... tell talking too much? <laughs> no, well, how about, I know how about, it might be because I'm not wearing pants. Oh, oh that could be no! Is that be it? <laughs> that could be should it. I, should I move the camera? Down? <laughs> no. Things may be larger in this. Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so tell us, tell us the rest. You say that people were egging you on and and pushing you. Uh, yeah, I, I, the, this is the, I hadn't had this happen ever that i could remember but people in the crowd were really wanting to see me blow i mean hard and i and i want to you know i want to go outside myself every night you know i want to have fun and i want to go there but it just i was just kind of just phoning it in it just i wasn't inspired you know first solo second solo third song fourth song just kind of like ah all right you know it's playing by numbers i was just all right and then people were kind of catcalling me, not in a, not in a shitty way, but they were just kind of, come on, George, we will do, you know, you know what we want to see you do, and you know that kind of thing. And it, mm. it kind of bummed me out. And I think that's when I decided to switch amps. I switched amps, and everything changed. It Boom. was uh, it was a paradigm shift, mm. tectonic shift. It was crazy. You got you in the zone. So, sound is everything for me. Yeah, well, it gets you, it gets you there. Hey, uh, question for you. Putting a lot of pressure on Dave right now. <laughs> Dave knows I'm going to be coming into the shop probably like tomorrow or the next day, and he's going to be like, Pfft. "Well, don't come tomorrow. I'll be Dude, the factory. If I suck, it's your fault." <laughs> <laughs> if you didn't like tonight's show, call Dave at Toad Merchants at eight one eight. We hear about it anyway. Um, it's okay hey, if you if you say call tone merchants, that means my partner will get the call. So uh <laughs> <sorry>. Rob. <laughs> yeah. So so wait, oh, I got a question for you. Yeah, I got a question for you. Someone asked a question here. Um oh Shiner handmade tone or something asked. He goes, he asked about the uh amp she used on under lock and key. Do you remember uh, even? 
I actually I had I had some marshals, but I also had um, Laney's. Yeah. Yeah. The original what? The original pro uh, old Laney's or uh, not? Were not they like the eighties. No, not like the 80s. super group or the clip. Not those. Not the late sixties ones. I had. Yeah. 80s Laney's that so uh, pro tube the pro tube series probably uh, uh i don't know if it was that um that would have been the first the era the models of, of the Laney. the pro the pro tube uh 50 and 100 were the first ones in that kind of era that 80s era and then later they came out with the aor version of it which aor it was an aor and uh the guy from metaltronics had worked on it Oh, okay. So it was Lee Jackson modded Laney? What was his name? Uh, Lee Jackson. Lee Jackson. You yep. got it. Bam. Hmm. Okay, that's cool. But then on tour, on tour weren't you, didn't you use Frank Levi modded amps on tour or something? Yeah, Frank Levi modded amps. Also, Caswell modified, uh, modified amps. I think. Hard to remember. It's been a while, but uh, you and a lot of amps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, they, they they were all metals. I didn't have any plexis back then, uh-huh. so they were all you know seventy one to seventy four metals. Right, 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 right. Some bass, some trams, some super. I think I favored the tremolos back then. All right. Hey, George, we got a question from John Storms. He wants to know if you know what the original Skull and Bones guitar was made out of. Was it maple, mahogany, or basswood, or some other wood? Oh, it was a hodgepodge of just blocks and blocks of stuff glued together. There was no rhyme or reason to that. That was really uh, 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 just a big old happy accident. Oh, yeah? You know, it wasn't luthier built. It was, it was uh, J-Frog. And with the little, I, I was involved to a certain extent more in the design of it, but you know, he, he's not, it wasn't a luthier. So he, he was, he was building it from the angle of a, you know, like a horror movie prosthetic, which is what he did. He, he, he made like monsters and, and mm. slash movies and stuff, you know, and just blood and guts and gore and stuff like that. And, uh, and uh, he got a body, just a regular body. That I got for him, and then he just glued a bunch of blocks of wood on it. I, it was just a just random stuff. I mean, it might have even been like pine in there, and, hmm. you know, just random. There wasn't anything. I, I don't know what the core body was on it. To be quite honest. Okay, but it wasn't heavy, so I think it was probably alder. I'm guessing it wasn't maple. It was something easy to carve. Basswood hmm. so, or alder, maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. Some kind of open grain wood, not not a hardwood. Now you're doing those guitars with uh, with Craig Rundles, right? Yes. Making... Yeah, we're doing uh, the OGs, which are exact replicas of the of the first one. And uh, I mean, and we had the first one, and we you know laser replicated everything. Uh, took you know hundreds of high def pictures and every little nook and cranny and scratch and you know, dowel. I mean, there's little spots in the wood where there were where dowels put in and then covered up, and mm. uh, you, you wouldn't even know that. But I mean, that's how accurate this is. So, 
you know, I mean, it's scalloped as the old one was. And so yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I held I held one of the uh, replicas, or I think it was the first replica that um, Ricky Steel Edge bought, or the uh, second okay. replica. It may have been the second yeah. one. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know who that is, but um, you know, I just I, yeah, I know you signed it on the back to him. I think it was at uh, two years ago, Nam or something like that. Yeah, they're fantastic. I mean, I should probably have one and play it, but you know, probably something I should think about doing, but yeah, uh, I mean, they're so expensive. I can't probably, I can't, I can't even afford my own guitar. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, get one of those, get rid of the amps. One of the amps you can, you could do it. Um, here's a question for you from David Allen, Wright. He wanted to know, um, were you the, or, or, you're you're an artist for ESP. He wanted to know: Were you one of the first artists for ESP, or endorsed artists for ESP? Or um, I know that Paul Pesco was in, uh, an endorser before I was. And Paul, hmm. uh, if you don't know who he is, he was uh, played Holland Oates, played with Joan Baez, um, musical director, a guitar player for Madonna at one point, and played with lots of other i played with share so he's, he's just a consummate musician um you know he's one of those guys you know he just sings like a bird plays keyboards plays guitar plays bass but plays probably everything you know plays drums composes engineer uh, you know uh i he was he was an art he was uh, on the roster before i was i'm not sure who else was on there? But um, I think I've been there now 30, maybe 36 years or something. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's after a while you stop counting, but it's been a while. Yeah. And they're like family to me. I mean, you know, the, the, the CEO, Matt Masindaro, used to be my guitar tech in Dawkins. And uh, um, we uh, he was probably the worst guitar tech <laughs> I ever had, but we became really good friends, and it didn't matter, you know, because I didn't care, you know. Still sounded good, I mean, you know. You plug a head into a cabinet, and plug the guitar into it, you know. But uh, uh, since then, of course, we we've been best friends for for you know ever since then, the mid '80s, yeah. and uh, he's been like uh, you know best man at my wedding, uh, godfather to. Uh, one of my daughters, my middle daughter, and uh, you know, I spent a lot of time down there, and it's been a, a great story because you know, it's worked. Mm -hmm. You know, and I've been involved in other endorsement situations, particularly on the amp side, where it hasn't worked, and you know, uh, so it's it's nice when something works, you know, and everybody wins. Mm -hmm. so, Definitely. Uh, we got a. We just we just uh, reissued the. Uh, an LTD version of the com of the uh, lime green kamikaze four with the cheese mm -hmm. grater headstock. Uh, so that's doing really well. Um, yeah. So, you know, it seems like every year they do a reproduction of one of the old guitars, you know, either uh, one of the tigers or the commies or the GL 56 mm -hmm. or this or that. Um, and people love it because it's, you know, it's a, the, it's a limited amount of guitars that they make. So you've got mm -hmm. 
a limited amount of time to get it and then they won't make any more and that'll be it. So people, uh, people, you know, pile on to get them. Yeah, no, they're, they're great guitars. I was at the ESP booth in, at NAMM and just amazing stuff. Really beautiful yeah, guitars. L- LTDs are great too. A lot of times, I mean, I, I actually got an LTD here that I use for a lot of recording uh, and it sounds fantastic. And in, in some ways, uh, sometimes they can be better than the guitar that costs four, four times more, you know. If you find a good one, yeah. I'll usually change, I'll change the pickup and, you know, you work on the action and do a couple little things here and there. But fundamentally, they're, they're fine guitars. I mean, when we were younger growing up, you know, our entry-level guitars were... Piles of junk. Pieces of crap. Yeah. <laughs> Barely playable. I mean, the thing is, back then... When you get an entry-level guitar or student guitar or a cheap, you know, Tysco or St. George or something, they were barely playable. And this was at a point, you know, where you needed something that was playable because you were learning to play and you wanted something inspiring. But mm-hmm. you would get something that was the opposite of that. So it made it right. doubly hard to learn, you know, to get good when, uh, in that era. You know, I'm talking about the 60s and, and probably even the 70s. And nowadays, you know, uh, a kid starting out can go buy an ESP uh, or an LTD 200 series for maybe $400 or whatever it is, maybe less. Mm-hmm. And, and, and many other makes, you know, guitars. And for that kind of money, you're getting a great pickup, a decent pickup, uh, a very playable neck, you know. Back in my day, I mean, it, you'd have to put up with, you know, half-inch action, <laughs> a pickup that mm-hmm. sounded like shit. Uh, wouldn't, the guitar wouldn't stay in tune. It was just horrible geometry it was just not fun and Mm -hmm. uh nowadays that's not the case so for a couple few hundred dollars i mean you get something that's 75 percent as good as the four thousand dollar guitar you know for all intents and purposes you know right Uh, and then as you get older and you get better of course all those subtleties are important and then you pay a whole lot more money to get that other 10 15 percent because then at that point, everything lives in that 10% difference. You know what I'm saying? And for, for instance, when I go on the road, I take my very best gear. I don't, you know, a lot of guys will just, they won't take the good stuff out because they don't want it to get hurt or whatever. But I feel the opposite. I feel, well, if anything, I mean, what is the whole point of owning this stuff if it isn't to play it when it matters, which is when people are coming to see you live? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. I agree. I mean, why would I want to give up any, pers- you know, uh, fraction of my tone for when I'm out there playing live, when you want to be inspired? And so I fly and travel with super valuable gear because that's the stuff that sounds great. And I can't compromise. I can't play a new amp, let's say, or something that, you know, that sounds 80% as good as the real deal. I can't do it. Mm-hmm. I just can't. And I know most guys can, and I, I don't get that quite honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, you might as well, right? That's what, you if know, you've got you, it. You want to be happy on stage and, and you want to yeah, be I, in I, the I, zone I, and you want to be in that and, and, you know, renting a whatever is not going to make you happy. <laughs> You know, it's not yeah, going to showing up and getting, a, you know, some rental houses, JCM 2000 or something. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it wouldn't be 
horrible, horrible, but that's not why I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You might as well use the good stuff. And you have your signature sound. That's part of it. Yeah. That's everything to me. I just, it's just crazy. I don't know how to describe it, but um, I mean, it's almost like if I couldn't do that, I wouldn't want to go on tour. Mm-hmm. And then, then I think about somebody like, and this is, I'm not saying this in any kind of disparaging way, but like, let's say Billy Gibbons, who could, who owns everything and could play through anything. And yet for whatever reason, doesn't use what I think would be what he really want to use ideally in a perfect world. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If he had no other considerations, yeah. he would, you know, and I'm not just pointing him out. I'm saying, you know, Oh, there's a lot of artists that are like too, that. But yeah. They're just like, I don't take out my good stuff. I'm like, well, why do you have the good stuff? <laughs> what do yeah, you it's not it like for? it's not like it's not like any more the records that are being made or selling. You know, like like it's not like it's being heard and the records are being consumed in the same way they used to be. You know, so right. where people are going to hear you now is live, and you might as well have the good stuff. You know, um, yeah, and a guy not? like like. Uh, Eddie or Billy Gibbons or, you know, you know, dozens of other guys that have, you know, they're, they're a list artists. They have full crews and, 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 you know, their gears in a semi truck with, you know, they don't have to worry about everything's cased up. Everything's protected and they have redundancy. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't see what excuse they have for not doing that, you know, but um, now, on the other hand, I have a, a friend who's uh, a, a tech for uh, a bass player in Rolling Stones, and he tells me, you know, I'm always quit asking him a million questions about what's going on over there, and they do what I'm talking about. I mean, they bring out yeah. the real shit. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. he's I, I haven't gone to a show yet, but I hope to someday. And he was telling me I got to come down into the amp room, which is below the stage. Have you been? No, I haven't been. No, but that sounds great. I like the sound of it already. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the band tours with like fifty tweeds, oh, uh, high-powered twins, three uh, ten bandmasters, uh, basements, a bunch of other stuff, and other stuff too, obviously. But you know, so Pierre's got like fifty tweeds out there, and of course their guitar collection. Who knows? I mean, just the craziest shit on the planet. One yeah, of everything. Man. Well, two of everything. Crazy. Wow! So that's, that's pretty admirable. That's beautiful. You know, I, I love to see the old gear getting used. You know, you know. I saw. Uh, I don't know if you saw this little thing on uh, it was on Instagram or something the other the couple weeks ago, and it was uh, 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 I forget the guitar player uh, uh, Mark Knopfler, mm. and he was sitting there and he was trying to. He had a I think a fifty eight or fifty nine. You know, just beautiful Les Paul uh, and just one of the ones, you know, and he was starting to talk about it and then he just stopped and he got a little misty eyed and he kissed it. That's all he <laughs> needed to say. There you go. And that's that was the end of that. He didn't have to say anything. He's just so <laughs> happy know. that that thing. You existed, felt it. You know? Yeah. yeah. So uh, so here's a question. Tell us tell us about your uh, uh, your new pickup, the Hunter. Oh yeah. Oh, right. So, you know, when Prepare, I was, well, this guy, years, I used to, 
sorry, right. sorry. This this guy was asking, how does it compare with the screaming demon, or what's the differences? Oh, completely different animal than the screaming demon. The screaming demon is kind of a misnomer. I mean, it's a cool name, but it doesn't really define the pickup, uh, describe the pickup properly. Uh, people have expected that, you know, understandably, to be a very high gain pickup, and it's not. It's it's mm. it's the opposite of that. Um, uh, the hunter is the hunter is a higher gain higher gain pickup than the screaming demon, and um, it's very close to what I used in in uh, docking the docking days, which was a um, a hybrid of a distortion, which is a, a, a it was ceramic, but it, it had the same distortion winding, but it had a uh, uh, one of the coils was was really it was a I think it was like a distortion meets a pearly gates, uh, and uh, and that's what I use pretty much from uh, well under lock and key back to the attack hmm. in that era. That's that's the pickup I used, and um, so we recreated that. And um, now I'm not going to say that okay buy that pickup and you're going to get the under lock and key sound. Because there's right. all these other things going on, you know. Of course, you got to have yeah, the, sure. you know, the amp and so, the fingers. Yeah, I, I'd say pickups are a ten percent thing, and sometimes they're critical, and sometimes they're not. Like my Tiger guitar, I can put any pickup in that thing virtually, and it sounds. It doesn't matter what pickup is in there. I mean, to a small degree, maybe, but it always has the same kind of sound no matter what, and. Um, then I've had other guitars where the pickup is incredibly critical, where it can make or break it. So it's it's really hard to claim that a pickup is going to do anything. And uh, I think pickups are the hardest thing to really figure out, quite honestly. You know what I mean? Because there are so many options, and they're so difficult to put in and out and judge. Yeah, exactly. You can't you can't like A B them instantly. Right. It takes time. <laughs> right. So yeah, my, my friend and I have been doing this thing where we we record it, you know, in Pro Tools, and then put put it in. But the same amp, the same mic, the same guitar, everything play the same thing, and then do it with a number of pickups, which takes a while, and then go back and listen to the session and listen to each track and and A B it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's well, that's probably about the best way you can do it. Right. And you know what I found out? I could hardly, uh, uh, doing a blind listen, I couldn't tell the difference a lot of the times, most of the time. It didn't sound mm. any different to me. Or I would get it wrong every time. <laughs> so what does that tell you? Blind tests are always the best. So, Yeah. It tells the truth. Because your, your eyes will tell you different. Get a, get a, 50s, a good 50s PAF and you'll never need another pickup as long as you live. But a good one, though. A good one, right? That's, that's <laughs> Not all of them are good. Just now, when you consider a good one, doesn't mean were they like hot ones or were they typically? It's, it's no, hard to explain. Not, I mean... Like, I, 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 they were different. They're all different, you know. They so some of them, um, some of them had a better sort of mid-range content to them and cut more. Other ones sounded more scooped and were kind of sloppier in the bass response. 
Um, so a good one to me has a good mid range with a, a pretty tight bass response. Um, I, I know, I know one friend of mine who has a 59 that has like the Holy grail pickup in it. I, I just love how that guitar sounds. Mm. And, uh, and he's had a, several other 59s and none of the pickups matched up to that one. None of them could do what that one pickup did. So what was the, it, what did it read? You know what? I have no idea. I just know how I, I just, uh, you know, sounds amazing. I mean, eight and a half, nine, something like in that world. Oh, it's not even that hot. The neck ones were wound a little less hot, right? Supposedly. Mm-hmm. Supposedly they varied a lot from, from anywhere from, you know, 7.5 everywhere to, 9k there's even some rumors of some it was willy-nilly and very random they just wind the pickups to the cold coils were fill full mm-hmm. <laughs> so wow. so it wasn't really like you know <laughs> and they used whatever magnet they had in stock at the time you know so it could have been an eco 2 it could have been an eco 5 there's some rumor of an eco 4 <laughs> so it could have been anything so you don't know what you're getting there were no Alnico eights at that time. And, Not uh, and, and and of course they've degaussed over years, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they can't. Yep, yep. So I wonder, I wonder if you walked into a music store, if we could have it. You know, we had the time continuum transporter machine, and we could go back to 1957 and, and go into a music store and pick up a Strat or 59, pick up a Les Paul. Would it sound? as magical as they do when it's had all the years on it? Mm, good question. Probably not. That My guess is no. Because Cause you know the, how a new guitar sounds stiff and kind of yeah. bright and it's not... It's, it's not I've, played, I've played some vintage uh, guitars that were like minty, minty fresh and, uh, mm-hmm. and they're always awful. Always. Yeah, right? I, it's I think not I've good. The one, the ones well. that look like they got drugged behind the truck, or some old blues man played played it until there was like a scallop underneath <laughs> on the strat, you know, until it was a scallop. Like you know what I mean? Like this? <laughs> oh, that's, that's a nice one. Look at this. Uh, you can't see the frets, but they're all scalloped. Uh, some of the, you know, the 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 the, the dots are popped out. And, yeah, and yeah, yeah, just worn in. Ooh. Oh, look at the back of the neck. Awesome. Oh, that's gorgeous. Right? What year is that? 59. Nice, P90. It's about that's an a cool 8.5. One. It's about an 8.5 P90. Uh-huh. Um, and it's incredibly magical, just like you, you know, it's like an old old shirt, you know, that you hope your wife never throws away because it just feels so good <laughs> on it. You know, you like so warm and greasy it's just how's the neck on it is it a big chunky neck beautiful just like like and you know i'm a i'm a i'm a wide flat sandinas charvel kind of neck guy and but then i I get these guitars and they're just like they just feel like going home again Mm -hmm. and it's 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 exactly the opposite of all the dimensions that i subscribe to but it's it's heaven it feels comfortable. 
I don't. I, I I like. I have a Telecaster that just has that fat neck, and it's oh wow! Look at the serial number there. Yeah. Cool. So That's can... beautiful guitar. I love the back of the neck. It's, it's so... oh, that is gorgeous. Yeah. And they didn't make a whole lot of these yellow ones. Um, and, That's the uh, kind of guitar that that when you when the case is opened, the first thing you do is smell it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're right. No, it no, no. That vintage beautiful. smell, that that vintage oh. kind of slightly moldy sort of <laughs> musty. Yeah, I, musty. I, uh, I don't know if you know who Doug Anderson is. From yeah, I know. The I know. Zone Doug. in Pasadena. Mm-hmm. But he has an incredible collection of, of amps and pedals and, and different things. Got some of Eddie's. Eddie gave him a couple of guitars back in the day, and he's up in Pasadena, so he he knows Eddie and used to work with him and stuff, or still mm-hmm. does, I think. But but he's got, he's got some incredible stuff. And I was, I was out there years ago, and I had to go to Vegas to do a record for Mike Barney. So, uh, and I was at his place, and I played into this. I plugged into this amp, uh, or this cabinet called a TNT, that had belonged to Can Heat. And I was mm-hmm. like, I fell in love with it. I go, I got to have this cabinet. I got to take it with me to Vegas. He goes, Well, you need to call your accountant your business manager and you need to get an insurance uh a writer on it maybe get like a million dollars insurance (laughs) um he made me sign a contract that i would return it within the amount of time you know specified four or five days whatever it was and if i didn't then all these penalties would kick in and then the most curious thing that he put in there was that i had to sign this thing saying i promised not to open up the cabinet because the cabinet was full of vintage air, and he didn't want the vintage <laughs> air to be released. Because that's why the to- that's where the tone came from was all the the old air. Oh my god! Nineteen sixty-seven or whenever it was made. So you don't um, want to. But I pointed out to him. I go, well, what about the speaker jack in the back? In the air, is there some transmigration <laughs> of uh, air and out there? And, it, and they, he he said, no, I always keep tape on the hole on the input jack. And then I just very quickly pull the tape and plug it in. And so I need you to promise that when you, you know, you'll keep the tape on there. It was really interesting. So, of course, the first thing I did once I got it, I signed all this paperwork and I did all that. And I, and I as soon as I got it to where I was going, I opened up the back. <laughs> hope Doug's not watching this. <laughs> and... Uh, it had newer, shitty Chinese Celestians. No. <laughs> and it had fiberglass batting, you know, like insulation fiberglass. Uh-huh. And it was all made of plywood. But it was wow. good. Nothing magical about it at all. <laughs> but it sounded fantastic. It was an oversized cabinet. There you go. Which is pretty oh, okay. Well, it. then we're gonna then we're gonna go go into another question here from that um what speakers did you use in cabinets back in the heyday of docking the do- on the old docking albums uh the first record was a, a metal handled uh, basket weave marshall and uh uh and that was as i explained at dieter dirk studio in germany oh. i had actually brought my old marshall and uh, a couple of marshall heads and at least one old basket weave cabinet with me uh, which is a whole other story how we managed to get that stuff to europe and mm. 
So I think no you money, told me that no story, but I don't it. quite remember the the answer to that, what um, that was. Uh, Don, listen, Don is gifted. Don Dockin, he's, he's he does have a gift. He has the gift of being able to get things done magically by hook or crook. I don't know how he manages it, but we had these incredibly cheap flights that we got to Amsterdam on a charter plane. Uh, they were like, uh, you know, it was a couple hundred dollars or something. And then we just, and I go, Don, but I got to take my gear. And, and I'd never flown out of the country before. So I didn't know that, you know, you couldn't take Marshall stacks with you. when you <laughs> <laughs> We brought our drum set. We brought our bass up. We brought Marshall stacks, everything, all our equipment. And we showed up and the airline was like, what the hell is all this? And Don talked it onto the plane. I don't know how he did it. They didn't charge hmm. us. We got all our gear over there. Um, and uh, yeah. then when I was at, uh, when I was in the studio down in the basement, which was an incredible studio. I mean, it was, it was the old part of the studio, which was pretty neglected and it wasn't the big fancy, you know, 130 channel Neve board like they had up in the other room. It had an MCI 400 board. It had a Telefunken 24 track, two inch tube machine. Wow. Tube. That's great. When have you ever even heard of a tube tape recorder you know yeah, never two inch tape recorder it's, it's usually discrete class a right which is fine but this was a tube i mean you see the tubes glowing and it was insane and we're in germany it was telefunk and it was like post-war unbelievable and it, it had a sound man i tell you it was incredible uh there was also um a couple of pieces of gear in there that caught my eye and it ended up being richie blackmore's cabinet hmm. so i used that uh and my gray tube Echoplex to preamp the Marshalls. This is a, a 60s uh, EP2, I believe. And um, also a Range Master treble booster, which was Richie Blackmore's, was in there. It was on a shelf, it was just sitting there. I didn't even know what it was. So, <laughs> yeah. Talk about a gear find. Holy shit. Yeah, that's awesome. Very right. cool. That's very cool. Um, we've got a question here. Uh, here, someone just sent me. Can Jim Becker? Can you ask when? Um, what, what was the question? Could you ask about when when you did uh, the Randall Solid State stuff? Oh yes, yeah. So Gary Sunda was the engineer there, and uh, and uh, Mister Mr. Randall. I don't even remember his first name, but he was obviously the owner and the president. And I remember. You know, we go into his office once in a while and say hi to him. And uh, But Gary Sunda was the engineer. So he was the guy, kind of like Dave, you know, that's the guy that I worked with. And we, uh, what we did is we um, we brought in this 50-watt Marshall that I had that was my favorite Marshall at the time. I don't remember what year it was or anything. but uh, And he scoped it and tried to emulate that curve with the, uh, when we designed the RG. 80, but it became the RG100. Hmm. Uh, had some kind of other designation, maybe an R RG100S or something. I don't remember. Um, but anyways, so the point being that, yeah, we scoped the 50 watt and tried to emulate that curve. Now I don't know if that's really how you get an amp to sound like another amp is by getting the oscillating oscillation curve to match. Dave, does that make sense? That's a the starting point. Yeah. Those are those are pretty pretty cool sounding 
solid state amps, you know? So let me ask you, Dave, from a, from an engineer standpoint, is there such a thing as like legacy cool transistor versus shitty transistor circuit? Cause I had a, I had the feeling that, 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 that maybe there was some quality enhanced quality to the circuit in these early Randall amps. And that's why they sounded so good other than the design, of course. The, well, I mean, I think that it, I think you were dealing with sort of antiquated technology at the time. Um, um, but, um, but that's not to say it's sort of like, you know, your, your old, uh, old receivers, you know, like the old, uh, the big Marantz receivers and stuff. Mm -hmm. And, Not the and, two, you know, the early transistor. It, yeah, just the early transistor receivers, you know, the big heavy ones, and 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 they sound great, right? You know, right. like if if, yeah. if you if you just play anything through them and through some good set of speakers, you're just like, oh, that sounds rich and great. They don't sound as good as the as the tube receivers. Well, okay, that's a whole different thing, but uh, but compared to anything today, they sound infinitely better. Yeah. You yeah, know, you're right. Anything there you are people you put your music through. <laughs> there, right. there are audiophiles that swear by those, yeah, transition, uh, you know, components for yeah. for stereos. Yeah. You know that. So obviously, obviously, the tube stuff is insane, wonderful. You know, like an old Fisher or a, 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 a Macintosh power. Obviously, monoblock mm. power would be that's incredible. It's like why, why, why did an old H and H power amp sound so good? And that was that was a yeah. Solid state. Right? Speaking of that, wait a minute. Hold on. You got one. What's he going to show us? I have show and tell. What is that? This is. I don't. I don't know if you can see it. It is an H and H. Oh yeah. Slave, one fifty power amp. It was designed, uh, this was back in the era when Laney owned the company, and it was designed to sit on a 4x12, right? And sit your head wow. right on top of it. Hmm. Wow. And uh, so uh, it's just a mono power amp, 150 watt H&H, but um, I just saw this and had to buy it. And it's super cool. <laughs> that is, I've never even heard of that. That's crazy. it's pretty light too. So like if you wanted to do a wet dry thing, something simple, you could totally do, you know, your a Marshall on top and hmm. into a cab, a line out into, you know, a cool whatever into that and so power the other cab. What, what's the power amp I'm using right now for my delays? Power amp you're using a matrix, matrix right now, yeah. How would that how would the H and H compare to the Matrix? If I were to pull the Matrix and use the H and H. Matrix Matrix is pretty damn good, but I mean look, look um the H and H has a, a thing about it that it's pretty cool. Um you'd have to compare. But here here's the thing. A full H and H power amp weighs as much as, you know, two amps. You mm -hmm. know, it's like super heavy and it's not really viable for you to take around. You know, you can, mm -hmm. you just barely get by with the one you got, you know, That's weight true. wise. That's true. So there's, I don't think it's really a viable if thing. I, you know? If I could get any power amp in the world for a guitar rig, it would be probably a strategy to 95. Really? The boogie. Why is that? Was it a strategy or was it a, 
Strategy 500? No, I think the strategy was the four and 500. So what was the 295? Simulclass? Well, there was the Simulclass 290. 290. That's the one. Simulclass 290, which it had the different tubes, right? Uh, No. Tubes, I think. It didn't. That that was the 295. Oh. That had the mix of tubes. Maybe it was the 295. But anyways, whatever it was, that thing sounded so rich and musical and three-dimensional, I remember. And I, I don't know why I haven't gotten another one. That's one of those things on my list of, God, know, I, list I on my really... of things I never remember to buy, but <laughs> I'm going to... I kind of remember those as not being that great, but but then again, wow. I could be wrong, but I don't think I ever used one of those. So, I mean, well, you I know had... Who's a, who, you know who else swears by him is Joe Satriani. Oh. And he used those in all those, you know, his most well-known records, uh, right. something with the alien subsequent albums. Hmm. At least that's what I've read. But hmm. yeah. I haven't heard, I haven't had heard one probably since 1989 <laughs> or 90 or something. I'm starting I, to rediscover I, some of that. So some of the good eighties stuff, like the, uh, 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 SD 3000s. SD 3000s. Wonderful. Yeah. I love those delay. I love those things. Yeah. Uh, and that really translates. You know, when I saw some footage recently off this last run you just did, and you can really hear it. I mean, you 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 hear that ambience on the guitar, and you just hear you just hear that richness, and it's and it doesn't get in the way the way we're running it. The, the rig that you set yeah. up for me, it doesn't get in the way. I mean, I for years and years, I was just running the delay in front of the amp, you know, because I don't have effects loops. And I didn't know a line out was possible. I didn't even think about that. Mm. And it just cluttered up the tone so much. It, it just mm-hmm. never had that separation that you get in the studio, which is what right. I was always looking for. Right. Um, to get that live would have been just... I, I thought, you know, ideal, but I could never get that. And I always thought I was using the wrong delay pedal, so I kept changing and changing. But you never want delay in front of the amp. It's just a mess. Not unless you're going for something really analog-y, something specific to that. Yeah, maybe maybe an Echoplex, if you want to get what the Echoplex does, because the early Echoplexes did a preamp thing. So if you weren't even using the Echo, Right, and just the fact that it was going through the circuitry did a mm-hmm. thing to the front of the amp that was really yeah. cool. Right, and then you've seen these companies come out with these little pedals that are supposedly just the preamp section of these Echoplexes, but they're not. <laughs> they don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you know, hey, it'd so, be nice. It would be nice if they did, but I'm not sure. So, so here's another question. Uh, tell us about Aspen Pittman's Purple Marshall. Hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, didn't didn't you borrow that a bunch of times? I know. I I rented it uh, during uh, for many docking tours, and uh, I think at least one docking album, if not more than one docking album. So I basically rented that amp for probably well over a year. Right. At a pretty expensive rate. So. Essentially, I probably paid for that thing 10 times over. <laughs> and then when it was all said and done and he called it in, uh, I was like, well, can I buy it? And he declined to sell it to me um, because he knew what he had at that point. And right. then from what I understand, you know, he sold it for 
a pretty penny because obviously I famous. You made it famous. Yeah. <laughs> so. Oh well. Oh well. Yeah, that stinks. Um, there was. Uh, let me go to some other questions. How how you doing on time, George? Uh, well, I don't have anything to do. Okay. <laughs> well, there you go. There's the answer. <laughs> All right. Let's talk some more gear then. <laughs> yeah. So actually, yeah. Fernando Tabard. I'm probably going to go back and play all this stuff. There you go. <laughs> Get inspired. Um, Fernando Tabard said, uh, George was recently spotted playing a Friedman amp. Um, I don't know where he spotted you, but he wanted to know, is that a new amp for you or what amp were you playing? Uh. I think the Might last. Japan. Well, I, I have no idea what what he's where he's what he's talking about. I mean, you know. Um, mm. Might have been in Japan. There were some amps that were loaned. Oh, 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 was in oh, Japan. Oh, yeah, when I maybe. Did the I don't know if you actually wound up playing them, but um, and uh, and then for a long time, George had a Dirty Shirley too that he liked a lot. Yeah. And he played that for a few years, kind of hidden away. Yeah, um, the Dirty Shirley was 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 a. Very plexi-ish to me. It was that offset plexi look, and that put, uh, and then yeah, it was very kind of just real simple amp. You know, no push pull, no just one channel, just like a plexi. You know, just plug mm-hmm. in and one trick pony, dime everything, and away you go. And it's wonderful. And uh, um, that was uh, record. I think the first KXM record. I I used it on the first KXM record, and I also used it on the Shadow Train record. And then I. I think I moved on after that. But, uh, now it's full circle. It's back to the old marshals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Gotcha. I can't be uh, upset with old marshals. No. It's hard to get mad at old marshals. Yeah. Can't get, mad, get mad, mad at old, old marshals. That, that, that was my, that was, you know, that's, that, that's where I came from. So. <laughs> yeah. That's your DNA. Yeah. Um, Thrifty Flipside has a question. He wants to know, George, is Mick Brown uh, your favorite drummer to play with? Well, he's my favorite drummer to play with in certain contexts. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dokken, of course. Uh, uh, I'm doing a project with uh, Jeff Pilson, Mick Brown, uh, and uh, Robert Mason from Warrant, who used to be in Lynch Mob. <sighs> and we're doing a project called Superstroke, and hmm. uh, it's all written. Um not a great name. I have a real big problem with naming bands. I, I it's my, my big, it's my weakest thing. I, I just, I can't come up with a good band name. Uh, I, <laughs> that's gonna, and I, that's and gonna I hate, be a I good band. name. Superstroke. I mean, like we're 50, 60 year old guys and we're called super strokers. I mean, the, the visual is horrible. <laughs> you know, who wants to be in that band? But they're, they're imagining it's like super stroke, like the, you know, a muscle car, you know, that kind of thing. Okay. Well, Still silly. That's not the first thing I uh, thought of. I got outdated, (laughs) so I'm in super stroker. Um, But the music is just stunning. And mixing that, and he plays his ass off. There was also a new original studio song on the Dawkins record coming out April 20th, I believe it's coming out. Yeah, I heard it. Uh, It's a live album, but it's a new song, and it's out there. on. You could watch it on YouTube. There's a video. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mick is killing it. Just killing it. It's like I kind of thought he was, you know, like a lot of us were getting older, kind of, you know, I'm the same way. I lose a little speed. I lose a little of this or that. 
singers, it's hard for singers to maintain their abilities as they get older, you know, and, and, and I thought maybe Mick, you know, he was kind of just settling into his ways and wasn't really pushing himself, but you got to hear him on this record, dude. <laughs> he's, he's like Mick from 1984. I mean, it's, he's phenomenal. He's got all that bottom stuff, all the groove. He does that thing. Nobody else does. There's not too many guys left to do that. You know, mm -hmm. um, it's just, it's just thick as a brick. And, you know, he's just, yeah, know, that new song was great. In the trench. Mm -hmm. that, that new original song is really phenomenal. good but as far as favorite drummer i mean there is no such thing it's like i've got the luxury of it's one of the things i love about where i'm at in my you know in this journey musical journey is i've, I've got a little bit of a name and i'm and that buys me a license to open up some doors to play with other people and even explore lightly explore other genres mm -hmm. um and so, for instance, I have this band called Ultraphonics with uh, 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 Pancho Tomaselli, who's the bass player in War, and uh, and uh, sub for uh, uh, Rocco in uh, Tower of Power uh, quite frequently, and uh, and Corey Glover's in the band, uh, hmm. and uh, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just we're, we're doing funk, we're doing fake jazz, we're doing blues, we're doing all kinds of other stuff, and rock, obviously too, but. You know, and so, you know, to say who's your favorite drummer? Well, Sal Rodriguez from War, when when he was first in, uh, when we played together uh, in this, what has now become Ultraphonics. I mean, I'd never played with anybody that played like that in my life. I mean, this guy's just a groove master. I, I just, it sounded like two drummers, it sounded like the per percussionist was playing at the same time. Mm -hmm. It was so deep, I couldn't freaking believe it. It was so sexy and so just liquid and i would just made me play completely differently and uh allowed me to not play so much that's what i noticed about it and i was in love with him but you know that's that's that was a very specific you know experimental thing uh, now i'm playing with scott coogan and lynch mob also a, just a beautiful experience playing with this guy who has a, a lot of background in, in r b and uh you know marching you know he's in the marching corps you know and, and, and doing all kinds of rudiments and things that are not rock and so when we play dynamically this guy gets it and he's closing his eyes and he's listening and we're all doing that and so i love that too uh, you know everybody i play with i i, I that there's something special about them usually mm -hmm. that's unique and and very fun and different and cool and i and it makes you play different that's that's the thing Playing with different people allow you to expand your horizons a little bit and pushes you. It gets you out of your comfort zone again, getting out of that comfort zone and opening up some some uh, doors and some different ways to look at music and you know forces you to grow a little bit or adapt. Mm -hmm. So, so what's it like to play with the guys in KXM? You've got some badasses Ooh, there, see, right? Dude, I'm just playing catch up with those guys, and don't tell them, please, because they don't know that I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just, I'm the guy. Oh, that Doug, Doug, be in Doug, that room Doug was already telling me that, so it's okay. Who doesn't belong in this band? There's one guy that I think. Well, who, well, who's playing those stupid notes? You old guy. I, I was hanging out. I was I was hanging out with Doug at uh, at uh, Jerry Cantrell's birthday the other day. Yeah. Um, yes, he was there. We were drinking. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well so you know kxm is is just it's 
such a crazy great experience because you know every two years or whatever it is you know we get together for two weeks you know and uh, we land in a room we don't have any songs we were not allowed to write anything beforehand we set up and we set up in a room together and the mics are all set up and it's just go and we compose on the fly and uh the end of two weeks we got an, an instrument we have an album done instrumentally not vocals but uh everything else hmm. and uh it, it's it's a it's you know it's a little bit stressful but not not super stressful i would not as stressful as you would think because we're having so much fun and basically we got a day to write one song and sometimes we write more than one song but in fact, frequently we do. In fact, I think on this third record we just we finished uh, some months ago, that's coming out in September, we were doing sometimes three songs a day. And and the way we would write is we were all standing there in the room and we can all hear each other, and somebody starts something, and we just we just follow along, and then it develops into something. Okay, we like that or we don't like that. Let's keep working on it. Sometimes we go down a blind alley and hit a dead end and we just have to go, you know what? Fuck this. Let's go somewhere else. Try something else. Mm. And uh, sometimes it works. And then when it works, then we just take that. That's our anchor part. Okay. Now we're building a song around this and we come up with clever stops and starts and changes and key changes. And we try to keep it interesting. And that's where Ray comes in because Ray is, you know, he's throwing out different time signatures. He forces that on us. It was up to me, everything would be in 4-4. You know, I'm old school. Uh, I don't think that way. But Ray mm -hmm. comes from a more progressive background, obviously. You know, our, our, you know, he's this ambidextrous, crazy, you know, drummer that's playing all this crazy shit. So he's trying to keep it interesting for himself. So he's forced, you know, he's taken in that direction. And, uh, and Doug is just like this consummate master old school musician who just... And he's just all gut and all heart, you know, it's not theory or anything, but he just comes up with stuff just naturally. He's just a natural musician. And I'm, and I'm filling in the blanks, you know, and, and, and obviously because I've got the guitar strapped on, I'm, I'm coming up with a lot of stuff too. And it's just crazy. We've got more ideas than we could ever fit on a record. <laughs> God knows what we'd come up with if we had a month. It is so fun. And it's kind of like walking a high, it's like a high wire act because you know, if you don't pull it off, you failed. In but it never—that's never been a problem. It's just like you know what we go in and it's so much fun. It's just—it's—it's it's actually at the end of the two weeks, it's sad. Hmm. It really is kind of depressing. The last couple of days, kind of like we know that it's, it's you know, we've come to, to the end of the process, and we just wish we had an excuse to keep going. But everybody's got things to do. Ray's got to go out and go tour with Corn and. You know, he lives in Nashville and Doug's got stuff going on. I got stuff going on, but it's really, it's kind of like, man, I wish we could, we all wish we could do it full time and make it a thing, but it's just not in the cards, you know? So it's a thing that we do for two weeks, every couple of years <laughs> and we make beautiful ever, music and it's awesome. Awesome. Have, experience. You, have you gone on tour or done any shows, live shows? Never yeah. and probably never will quite honestly, unfortunately, it's just for that's too bad. Know, yeah. Practical reasons. I mean, you know, it, it, that's the thing. And, you know, back in the day when we were kids, we had the freedom to do whatever, you know, you could go pile in a van and go play for free and, and, you know, chase the dream. But when you got mortgages and families and 
obligations and contracts. Mm-hmm. It just life doesn't work like that anymore. Yeah, being an adult sucks. but when that two-week period we get to be little kids again and it's beautiful it really really is well you know by doing it that way too it's like you're really creating art you're not Hmm. you're not overthinking you're not working something to death it's like (laughs) just go right first thing that comes out the point yeah and believe me, we, we don't, it's not like we get this, you know, we get the record done and we go, oh, it's perfect. I mean, we're, you know, I have all kinds of things I'm bummed about where I'm like, oh, that song, if I just had more time, we, uh, now I, it's obvious to me what we should have done there. There's always going to be a lot of that, you know, yeah. but that like, captures the territory moment because, you know, I mean, you're either going to make, you're going to make, make something that's just, you know, shooting from the hip, you know. Uh, or you're going to make you're going to go make the Boston album and you're going to make spend two years on it and a million dollars, right? And I think, quite honestly, it's it's a beautiful thing to just capture a moment in time, you know, that'll that just kind of comes and goes and it's a snapshot. And it's great. Yeah, I Apologies. agree. Hey, um, Mike Himmel said hi. He said, "Hey guys, great to chat with you at the Slaughter oh. Show." I was talking to Mike earlier today. Yeah, he caught me at the gym. I was working out, and I'm one of those people that pick up my phone no matter where I'm, where I am or where I'm, you know. You always think, "Oh, that could be the call," you know. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and it was Mike. And Mike could be the call. <laughs> Mike subbed on guitar for Slaughter on a show that we did with them about a month ago, I think. And uh, wonderful guy. And uh, uh, I've got, as you, we've been talking about, I have these old amps out with me. And my brown box, which is like a Variac, a newer version of a Variac, uh, which is something I carry on the road with me. And that keeps the voltage, you know, keep the mm-hmm. voltage around 115 volts, which was what those old amps like to see, right? Am I wrong? Or something like Somewhere that. Somewhere around there. Hey, by the <laughs> way, I need to ask you, uh, interject real quick. Well, I got you on the phone. Are you biasing my amps to the, to the 115 volts? Uh, yeah, the standard uh, 120. Should maybe we be biased into 115 because that's where I'm running my Variax. If you want to, sure. Okay. Well, anyways. I mean that that slight variation isn't gonna. It's it's five yeah. volts is pretty minimal as far as the okay. the tube bias goes. So. Um, we, we're like we're. I mean, if you're dropping it to 90, if you say you're dropping it to 90, then definitely we'd want to bias that up. No. No, I'm 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 keeping it right around 115. Should I be going to 110? Yeah. No, not necessarily. Actually, no, because it's so it's a one twenty tap. Actually, that's in the, in the amp. So, okay, all right. Anyways, so what? But it, uh, that, oh, so one fifteen is a nice sweet spot. Actually, I think it is. Yeah. So yeah. Mike had uh, uh, was using a, a a version of a brown box that I'd never seen. Some guy that he knew had just built it, and it was a much smaller uh, platform, so it was even lighter, and it sounded. And he let me borrow it, which I want to thank him for that. Mm. and uh and uh it sounded great and it worked great so he's hooking me up with uh this guy who's gonna build one for me and we'll check it out uh the problem with the one he had uh well the limitations of the one he had it only had two voltage settings so the one he's gonna build for me he's got another transformer being built he's gonna have a six position voltage setting which is you know the is the limitation of like these newer 
versions of Variax, like the brown box. They work fantastic, but they they don't have infinite variability as far as yeah. the voltage selection. Mm. They're pre-selected for, you know, you select the input and then, then your whatever voltage settings, and you can get it within a few volts. And of course, it does vary because no voltage stays constant unless you have, what, I guess, a regulator or something. But, right. I mean, you know, the variation, you can't take Variax on the road like I travel because they're too heavy, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they weigh like 25 pounds. Right, right. Yep, yep. That's cool. Um, yeah, Mike's a good guy. I don't guy. think you need Variax with a new amp, though. Do you think Variax do anything for new amps? That are designed to well, you know, you know, volts? Uh, keeping, keeping the amp around 120 or really actually 115 is kind of more a little more of the sweet spot, I think. Um, even a newer amp? Like Even that. a newer amp, yeah. Especially, you know, you know, a lot of places like, I, I, you know, a lot of places in the U.S. I mean, the wall voltage is crazy high. It's like, I, I, I talk to people. It's like, yeah, it's one twenty-eight. I'm like going, wow, that's technically. I mean, technically, it's supposed to be one seventeen. So, you know, one twenty-eight is high. And the thing is, when the voltage is that high, everything sounds really like bright and. Sh- sort of strident sounding, you know, like just too pushed. Everything doesn't sound relaxed, you know, and doesn't sound have that natural like kind of sweetness to it. So like, you know, cranking it down just a little bit. It's not even the sag about it. It's more like it's just like everything's on 10, you know. It's like mastering a record too hot, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's just like, you know, at at your ears. Um, uh, By just lowering it to around 115, it just gives you that kind of just Breathes a little sweetness back into it, and you don't risk breaking anything on a newer amp by lowering the value, the, the voltage to that. Well, you don't want to lower it too low on a new uh, on some newer amps. It depends. Uh, they have regulators and things in the amps that uh, do channel switching or things like that. And if you drop them too low, they they'll stop working. Basically, it won't hurt the amp, but they'll just stop working. Mm. So, mm. Um, um. But you should bias. You should bias according to voltage that, that's seen, though, right? Okay. Well, yes. Well, hypothetically, you know, it's all it's all a moving target. You know what I mean? It's like hmm. your wall voltage varies a little bit. It goes up and down a slight bit. It's uh, there's a wide range what you can really bias something to. Um, so you'd like to bias cold or hot normally? I don't. Do I don't do it real hot. Um, I don't do it real hot, especially on an amp that you're diming like you are. Hmm. Um, the tubes will die fast. It's 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 just I've, I found a sweet spot I, that I like and seems to work for a lot of people that use amps like that and that I over the years that I've just like and it's more like it's more like sixty percent dissipation instead of seventy percent, which is the stamp more standard. It just, it just, especially fixed number like 34 or 36 or, uh, actually most of the time, uh, around 32 milliamps. Right. I do. It depends on how the person's running his amp and what it is and how he likes it to sound really. So, uh, the thing is with an old Marshall like that, you almost want it a little on the cooler side because it keeps it a little tighter and, and, and doesn't get it as flubby. If you get it hotter, it's going to get sweeter but at the same time be a little looser sounding and not quite like tight attack, you know, that you, that you want to get out of it. So, yeah. You know, it, and amps change over, you know, as it warms up too. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and also as it warms up, you know. So here's another thing: you buy it, it kind of hot, and as an amp warms up, it gets even mushier and crappier. Especially, you know, you're you're running this amp full tilt, the whole show, you know. And uh, it's almost better to have it slightly cooler because it keeps that 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 tightness, and it doesn't quite get as crappy towards the end of the show. Mm, you yeah. know, I I I to me the ideal show is like. You kind of come out a little bit, a little bit sterile and cold. I mean, you never want to, you know. I'm not saying suck, but I'm just saying you want your show trajectory to go like this in yeah. intensity. You know, yeah. you come out, you're going through the motions. Yeah, yeah. You have your opening, you have your intro tape, you do your thing, everything sounds fine, and then you start getting into it. And the amp, I th- I believe that as uh, on a, on my really good nights, the amp is 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 doing that for me it's it's Mm -hmm. it's playing along you know it's like getting a little greasier and a little more lovable and just you're Mm -hmm. getting you know it's working with you to where it's just the touch thing is is responding perfectly and then you're just in the zone and i think that's cool when that happens on uh, gradually into the show because the intensity increases you know and the intimacy with the audience increases and all that. There's another interesting thing is like when you when you when you really get into bias you can you can literally sort of bias the amp by ear to some extent but hmm. you you there's a certain point when the the amp will just break into feedback just in the right way. And if you adjust the bias uh while really kind of listening for this kind of hmm. thing you'll find this spot that it just works. Mm-hmm. And if you go above it, it's like, oh, well, now we'll see it's do- dropping off there now. It's not doing what it was doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's what I kind of like to listen for a little bit, you know. So that's... you almost have to reverse, ideally reverse engineer your bias adjustment, find it by ear, and then find out what that is. Then test it and go, okay. Well, no, you, there's a range. Let, let's say there's a range. There, There's a range, you know, for – for like a bias on a Marshall or something or a Marshall style amp with, uh, uh, you know, probably anywhere from 30 to 40 milliamps would be the range mm-hmm. that, that you would, you would keep the amp in really anywhere in that range is fine. Mm-hmm. Um, depending, I mean, I'm just really a pretty wide generalization here because I don't know the exact plate voltage of the amp and stuff. But most amps that we're talking about, it's that range. Now, back in the day, you had, you know, amps that were 500 plate voltage. Well, yeah, then you're probably going to want to be closer to the bottom of that range. (laughs) Right. And nowadays, Uh, because amps are probably sick, or or, or amp companies are probably sick of fixing amps, you know, under warranty because of all the problems that high voltage, plate voltage can can have right so they lessened the voltage well uh the yeah to a certain extent not us but <laughs> <laughs> right well, now, but, I, i'm in every other amp but friedman friedman doesn't but uh no you know I, you know like yeah uh, companies like mesa and stuff definitely have um pv you know, had had their uh voltages a little on the low side and stuff um but um yeah, low voltage. You know, I never like. There was an era of Marshalls that were fifty watt Marshalls for a while, uh, kind of in the uh, late seventies. The JMP Marshalls, um, the fifty watt versions in that time frame, 
all they decided that they were going to put um, 380 volts on the plates, which is wow. way low. And, mm. and uh, I think 6550s at the time too. Mm. So um, because of tube reliability this is why, why this happened. But they only did it on the 50-watt model, mm. and which didn't make a lot of sense. Um, and I hate working on those because I just don't like – that play voltage that low just sounds fuzzy to me. And so what did uh, the what did the what did the early uh, '80s JCM 800s have? Or what kind of plate voltage for those? Uh, around 450. Because some of those are magical. Yeah, like crazy. Around 450. Uh, the 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 100 watt amps were 440, 450-ish. Yeah, and 50 watt or 100 watt were a very similar voltage. Yeah. Uh, and a standard Marshall over the years, a 50 watt Marshall would have been. 420 to 450 is mm. the standard, you know, around the thing. So they lowered it to 380, which is, it's just like, it, yeah. it, 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 it can't, it can't work, but it's generally those amps just sound kind of fuzzy and crappy. And what I really like to do with those is replace the power transformer with a, a newer replacement uh, because you get the voltage up and then all of a sudden, Oh, here we go. Here we go. That's much mm. better. Mm. You know, you keep, just the, lose it. keep their original o, uh, output. OT, yeah. 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 Um, you're not losing much. I mean, you're, yeah, it's just it's just in the end, it's better. But hey, we got a question the here from more of the character of the year. It just has that clean attack that that wallop, I call it that smack. You know, you smack the string and it just like percussively pops out of the cabinet, you know, yeah, that, that's maybe some that's, headroom. Big yeah, Chinese, it, get, it gives headroom. it a little headroom. Yeah, gives it a little headroom. The other one just sounds kind of soft and fuzzy. Um, you know, I remember when I used to bias my amps by hand in the in the in the like late seventies, very early eighties. The Marshalls, I'd take the chassis with the amp plugged into the wall, into the variac and in, into the wall, and I'd take the trans, I'd take the chassis out, and then there's the the what's the, the little white thing, you know, with the, where you yeah. put the screwdriver in. Yeah. I don't know what it's called, but buy bias pot, yeah, the trim pot, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I get in there in that trim pot, right? And I get in with a screwdriver, and I get it just to where it's. I have no idea where it was at, but I just get it to where it was that sweet spot, and I loved it. And that was probably the one thing I did that made the biggest difference in my sound, and it really, yeah. really worked. And I'd actually forgotten about that over the years. I haven't done that in decades, but and I probably should. Got to be careful. I why I stopped doing it. Because I got kicked like a fucking by, by a, the electric mule. <laughs> <laughs> I I know a that bunch mule. Of time. You know how many volts that. are going through that thing? Yeah, well, depend, uh, while it's on, yeah, four forty, four fifty, four eighty, depends on what amp you're talking about. Five hundred. Yeah. That'll yeah. give you. That'll give you a good it's kick. Got, it's like it's like getting hit by a hit like a fucking hammer. Yeah, it was it was no fun. <laughs> and I just, I just, you know, I got to stop doing this. But it was the yeah. only way you could do it. How else could you do it? You had, it had to be on. It had to be plugged in. You had to be playing through it, and have the screwdriver in one hand. And you, of course, you're making that connection because you're, you know, what's the old rule? I don't know if it worked with amplifiers, but you got to keep like, a, you know, a, one hand in your pocket. Is that the old electrician rule? <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the good idea. But basically, don't don't just don't stick your fingers in the amp. Don't complete the circuit. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, rubber yeah. shoes probably good, and your other hand in your 
in their pocket now. <laughs> I I've got here. Hold on, I got a. Uh, I have a show and tell. Hold on. Okay. Speaking of plate voltage. Oh yeah, Craner. Oh. Yeah. Basemaster YB YBA two. This is a Basemaster. Yeah. yeah. So it's a YBA something. YBA one. Okay. Right. Yeah. Canadian Marshals. Yep. Cool High plate voltage. Pretty cool. Five hundred and fifty plate voltage. On some wow. of them, yeah. There's two versions of it. So. Um, oh. There's a there's a high one and a low one. The low oh, one is with reasonable uh, things, but uh, reasonable. But the high one will blow tubes up all the time. <laughs> ah, damn! Maybe I got the bad one. How do you know which one is which? Uh, I don't know enough about the exact model which ones was which, but I can measure it. Well, guess what? It, guess what you're, else I'm bringing when I come to see you? That's fine. That's fun. I like those. <laughs> All right, they're kind of brutal. They're a little bit brutal. They're they're just very percussive and like, just yeah, almost a little bit high wattish. I just bought a a, a seventy one two hundred watt high watt, which sounds oh, okay. Brilliant. Well, that's got to be really brutal. <laughs> that, but just headroom for days. But it's all good. I mean, it's yeah, it's very musical. It's a wonderful amp. I mean. Hmm. I don't know. Right now, I think that might be. I haven't quite. I haven't taken delivery of it yet. It's being sent, but when I I have played through it, and you know, uh, there there was four hundred watt high watts too. That's I, what the hell? I, that's a base. I've never actually seen one in person, but I I know of it. And uh, oh my god! So what is that? A a, a octaset of KT eighty eight. I don't know what tube contact. I don't know. Uh, I don't really know what tubes six, are in it, actually. That has to I think be it's six, the L34, actually, though. But you have to have eight of them, right? Or I think it's something like that or more. 16 of them. Have you ever seen a K9 tube? No. K9, K9 is bigger than a KT88, but fits in the same socket. KT90? KT9. KT9. No. Huh. Never heard of it. Yeah, well, you know, there you go. I might be making it up. I might be lying, but I don't know. Could be. <laughs> I just made it up. I'm... Hey, uh, right. George, we got, we got a question from Timothy Pierce. He wants to know if you still have the blue guitar with the Charvel neck from last year on the Dockin and Lynch Mob shows. Blue. blue. Wasn't it green? I don't know. Uh, oh, oh, because... oh! That is uh, no. That that was um, that was just that was a friend of mine's that uh, again, as the same gentleman that that my friend that uh, we co-owned the '68 Plexi together, and he had sent that to me. Again, that was a swap. I'd sent him something. He sent me that to use for a while, and that was an old Charvel body with uh, maybe like a Mighty Might neck or something, just kind mm. of pieced together. It was wonderful, yeah. Uh, but you know, I'll live with these things for a little while and send them back. So no, I don't have that anymore. Ah, I gotcha. Here's a funny one, funny comment. And if you need his contact information, let me know. Uh, John Storm says, "My friend stole George's Randall from their practice space in Arizona when they jammed next to Priest." 
Did did someone steal your Randall amp? Uh, I don't remember that. Uh, okay, <laughs> that's what he says. Yeah. All right. Um, All right. Oh, great, fantastic. It's worth yeah. It's worth the whole. Yeah, is he is he is he is he is his conscious getting the best of him, and he's still like uh, you know after all these decades, he has to confess his crime. You yeah. had a whole bunch of stuff stolen over the years, haven't you, George? Yeah, it's and it's usually always somebody you know, and ninety percent of the time, yeah. it's, somebody works with you or somebody in the band or something like that. So uncool. Um, yeah, gear let's... thieves, dude. Special place in hell. <laughs> Totally. That's the worst. Someone takes your gear. Wasn't there a certain guitar that you got back or something from, that was stolen uh, years did. ago or something? Yeah, I had a, uh, I had a couple uh, taken, uh, walked away, somebody that worked for me, and uh, found out through a little bird that this person had uh, sold, the, taken the guitars from me and sold them. And I was able to find do just some forensic detective work and some help find the person that eventually eventually ended up with the guitar so it had gone through a few people a few owners in the, in the ensuing years had been like five years and i got a hold of the person and i said hey I, you know i explained him what happened and i said listen it's no fault of yours you didn't know what you're that you're buying a stolen instrument but i'll make you whole and i offered to pay the guy what he had into it to get the guitar back which i did uh but uh, near the end of this process, which was a very involved process, the person that had stolen the guitar, uh, I told them that when I get this guitar back, they're going to pay me back uh, what I had to pay to get it back. Mm -hmm. And so for that reason, they didn't want to see me get the guitar back because then they'd be on the hook for paying me back. So they were running interference, unbeknownst to me, and talking, telling this guy that I was going to beat him up and have him arrested. Oh, God. So as the day of reckoning came when the, I was actually, you know, the, we were having the meeting where I was going to meet the guy and pick up the guitar. It was about a two hour drive. And I had, he insisted it be, you know, unmarked bills and envelope. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, he kept canceling the appointment. And I was driving down there and I had uh, a third person that knew the guy was talking to him and talking him out of, you know, talking him into, you know, just see this through. George is a good guy. No, there's no cops involved. Nobody's going to beat you up. He just wants his guitar back. He has the money. And the guy was really afraid that it was going to be, you know, all, something weird was going to happen. So finally I talked to the guy directly. He didn't even want to talk to me. Finally, I talked to him directly. I said, listen, I'm not going to do it. I, I will just, just, I'm glad to give you the money. I just want to get my guitar back. And so his, he said, well, listen, then I need you to drop the money in a bag in this parking lot. Oh God! And then drive away. Once you drive away, I see you drive away, and I picked up the money. I've counted it. I will then tell you where the guitar is, and that's what we did. And he oh, had wow. it with the guitar was with the hostess at a Denny's. And so I went into the Denny's, <laughs> and she gave me holy the crap! Really? What a story! Yeah, it was like a drug deal or something. It was crazy. Holy crap! Wow. Hey, I want to. I have a question. Is there any way we could do part two, uh, and pick this up at a later, later time? Yeah. Because my wife is. We're good. Asking me to go to dinner, and I promised her. Uh, no, it's fine. We're good. No, we'd love to have you back, but no, no, no it's fine. We, we can let you go. 
Yeah. It's all good. I think Basically, we got it. To- my sex life is in your hands. <laughs> I know well, that I'll sounds let, terrible. I, I'll I, let you go. That's not the way I wanted it to come out, right? <laughs> <laughs> but we want to make sure you, you know, you, you're you're happy. So you're only home for a short period of time, you know. So, um, okay. we'll um, let you run. And but let's George, do it again, yeah, man. We we even, there's so much stuff we didn't even get into. I mean, it, it was just dude, we could literally go on for. We could have. Believe me, we know how long we can go on. Right. Every, t- <laughs> every time I stop in at Dave's, Dave, well, what we got to do is just set up the camera when I stop in at Dave's to drop off an amp where we have these hour long, basically what we just did here. But yeah, yeah exactly. lots of stories. So, right. Yeah, I'd love to pick it up and, and go to the next. Yeah, sure. You know, we'll do another time. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Right. We'll have you back, George. Well, thanks, All man. Right. George Lynch, thank well, you thank so you. much for joining us. We appreciate your time and uh, and joining us on the show. Yeah. Thank you, George. Yeah. Thank you, George. Do you have any, uh, any upcoming shows or anything like that that you wanted to promote or anything you want to uh, tell people? About? Yeah, we got uh, well, we get the Dock and Record coming out in April. Um, uh, Lynch Mob will be out all year. Um, I don't have schedule right in front of me, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you can go. You're check playing a couple dates in L.A. in May. I know that. Yeah, we got some stuff coming up, and actually in April as well, uh, we're playing here. Uh, we're playing the uh, Rainbow uh, Sunset Strip thing. Uh, uh, I forget what date it is, maybe the 15th or something. Um, and then, yeah, in May, we've got some shows coming up at the Canyon, uh, Canyon Club, and the Rose in Pasadena. I want to come to one of those. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. You could be my roadie, though. You could be my roadie that night. No, I don't want to do that. I just want to have a couple of drinks and watch. <laughs> you, can, you can you can drink while you're being my roadie. Okay. <laughs> my dream roadie, dude. That'd be awesome. That would be awesome. That's the most expensive roadie. Yeah, exactly. All right. Yeah, All right, awesome George. Got I, I got a guy. Have All a right. great night, man. Thank you. See you, George. All right. Dave, I'll see you. I'll see you probably in the next couple of days. Okay, not shot. tomorrow. I'm not here tomorrow, so. That's right. No Wednesdays. Okay. Yep, not Wednesdays. All right. All, All right, guys. George. Have Bye. a great night. Thank right. you. Thanks, everybody who's been viewing in, watching the show tonight. Uh, we'll be back in a few weeks. So take care, everybody. Dave, have a great night. All right. You too. Thank you. George, thanks again, man. Have a great night, and we'll talk to you soon.